You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 451. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 3E at the Embassy Suites in downtown Chicago. Today's show is recorded on the 1st of December, 2020. today's episode, the right landing gear collapsed as a passenger plane touched down in India following an earlier hard landing and go-around. A hiking guide uses his drone to find a missing golden retriever in upstate New York. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Bravo November. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 451 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins. New York City! All right. You're watching and listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, and... Joining me today from her lakeside studio in South Kakalaki. Kakalaki, Kakalaki. Doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. We just need fun sound clips for all of the different place names now. We do. We New York City. Just set them on. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's see what you got. I don't Glad have to be one here. for Cincinnati and London, but we'll have to come up with some. We'll, we'll fix it. <laughs> okay. Good to see you, Jeff. Good to see you, Steph. And also joining us today from his mobile studio in Cincinnati. World traveler, airplane mechanic, Brightling Cognizant, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. So what kind of sound do we have for Cincinnati? Don't know. I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> but happy to be here. Glad to see everybody on. It's going to be another good one. Cold one, but good one. WKRP. WKRP. Oh, that would be a good one. Oh, That's yes. what, uh, Did you guys, did you up. watch the turkey drop uh, clip Oh, you, this past weekend? No, I didn't, but uh, that's one of the best ones, I think. It, it is. Well, meanwhile, uh, we're going to introduce from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, lady and gentlemen. It's the 1st of December. You may now turn on your lights. All right, we'll do that. Lights are on, and here's the one for the news. Stand by for news. Now, when you say lights, are you talking about Christmas lights on the outside of your home? 
Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. You can you can bring up, put up the tree. You can turn on the lights. You can start being Christmassy. Okay. Anything yeah. before this uh, contravenes uh, a World Health Organization rule. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, yeah, they're into everything. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'm still not really okay with Christmas yeah. music this early, though. Like, give it another like ten days, maybe fifteen days. Okay, uh, we'll have to start playing that on the show as I'm well. Just, Grinch. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, Steph. Let's get a little bit closer to Christmas before we start playing the Christmas Thank music. You. And uh, yeah, when when uh, Nick said something about turn on the lights, I'm thinking I have no idea what he's talking about. No, I, I, I totally <laughs> got it. I, I got it. I got it for some reason. I did. Like, yep. And then I'm right there was, with you, Nick. I'm I was right playing the you. news uh, sounder thing, and I think, oh, he means like lights on the outside of your. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> Takes me a while, but you know. <laughs> I'm a brilliant person. <laughs> now that we've got Jeff all caught up. I tell you what, um, good. I'm getting slower and slower. I don't know. That's going to be a pretty sad right. sight in just a few years. <laughs> well, at least you haven't started drooling yet, Jeff. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, just wait. <laughs> My mom was before she passed away, so I'm sure I will too. <laughs> yep. Oh, to us all, probably. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, let's move on with the news before I get so old, I won't be able to read it. Um, item A. Your glasses. Well, I do have glasses. <laughs> if I didn't have the glasses, yeah, ain't no way. All right. Um, this is a TrueJet uh, AT72 at Mysore. <laughs> yeah, you're so what? And, and you're going to see why. Mysore Bottom <laughs> and uh, Chennai on November 16th, 2020. How would you actually pronounce that? Mysore? M- uh, we don't Mysore know. Mysore sounds perfect. Mysore. Okay. <laughs> It's appropriate yeah. for the Rick's story. probably landed there. So. <laughs> I've been to Chennai, not, 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 not my sore. Okay. Uh, it was an ATR-72-212 Alpha registration, Victor Tango, Tango Mike Mike, performing flight 543 from, well, I was going to say Belgium, but I don't think that's what that is. Belgaum to Mysore in India with 47 passengers, five crew, was on approach to Mysore's runway 27, 5,700-foot-long runway. At, Not exactly uh, a long runway, is it? No, 1,740 meters, if you prefer, at 1954 local time when the aircraft touched down hard and went around. That's what we call it, Mysore. The crew could not retract the gears, uh, the gear afterwards. The transponder signal was temporarily lost ooh, and recovered about 15 minutes later. However, the aircraft no longer transmitted any altitude information. They broke it. Uh, the crew diverted to the aircraft to Shen- diverted the aircraft to Chennai, about 210 nautical miles east of Mysore, reaching a maximum of 180 knots over the ground. The aircraft landed on Chennai's runway seven. This one's 3,680 meters long, or 12,020 feet, at a uh, little after nine o'clock local time in the evening, but suffered the collapse of the right main gear. No injuries are being reported. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. The aircraft still on the ground in Chennai about 24 hours after the hard touchdown. Uh, let's see. The uh, Chennai airport reported the aircraft carried 47 passengers, including one infant and five crew. The aircraft was unable to taxi off the main runway after landing. That's <laughs> taken a lot of power, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secondary runway was put into operation. A number of aircraft, however, needed to divert. Or divert your choice. The passengers disembarked onto the runway and were bussed to the terminal. The aircraft was towed off the runway about one hour after landing. On the 26th of November 2020, India's DGCA reported pilot in command 
formed a go-around due to loss of sight of runway because of sudden increase of intensity of rain and strong gusty winds. In other words, it turned all to mm, crap. During the go-around, aircraft contacted with runway surface. The crew was unable to retract the landing gear while going around. Aircraft diverted to Chennai with landing gear extended. Normal landing was carried out on runway 7 at Chennai. The aircraft stopped on the runway and sought ATC assistance to tow the aircraft. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. So, there we go. Looking at the weather. Uh, yeah, well, it doesn't look too bad, at least in the uh, METARs. Uh, light rain. Um, not, uh, not a bad ceiling. Uh, 8,000 over and then some scattered clouds below, like around 1,200 feet and 800. Um, yeah, doesn't look like it was heavy rain or anything, at least in the METAR. But no, uh, no, we don't have to no, give no, the no. guy the benefit of the doubt. But yeah. the, the interesting thing about this for me is uh, not uh, an easy and quick decision to make uh, going off to your diversion with the gear stuck down. No, yeah. No. You tend to so, burn a little extra fuel, don't you? Uh, yeah, well, uh, we used to guesstimate on about 50% more than mm -hmm. your normal diversion fuel. Uh, and if you're not carrying that, uh, or you don't think about it, you know, before you commit yourself to heading off and you get mm -hmm. halfway there and realize you can't make it. <laughs> you're exactly. a bit stuck. That's and it's good. true. I mean, the, on, on the, on the non-normal uh, portion of the QRH, it, uh, on the non-normal configuration, when you're actually flying around with the gear down, it says do not use FMC predictions for fuel because uh, the FMC can't account for the gear being down. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, uh, that's a very, very good point there next year. Another thing here I, I noticed... Um, never been to the airport. Actually, I've never seen the approach chart for the airport, but uh, wind is 148.8, and they're landing runway 27. Bit of a tailwind component there, mm. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> good point. On a, on a short runway like that, that's a little brave. Yeah, good planning. Mm -hmm. A little bit. So uh, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the situation there. I mean, oftentimes, oftentimes you do find your – and actually, we do have a question about that later on in the feedback. Interesting about um, um, runway assignments and all that. But, you know, oftentimes you do find yourself flying into runways with a little bit of a, uh, of a tailwind component because sometimes um, because of the weather, the one runway that has the instrument landing system or the approach procedure that will get you to the lowest minimums to be able to see the runway to land, uh, that particular runway – at that moment in time, might have a bit of a tailwind component, and you can indeed um, land with a tailwind component up to um, you know ten or fifteen knots, whatever the uh, airplane says it has to be, or the manufacturer says it has to be, or the or the airline. Oftentimes, the oftentimes the airlines uh, operating procedures uh, set the minimums a bit a bit uh, more restrictive. Um, but so you can do that. Uh, so it's it's not it's not uncommon for that to happen. But it'd be interesting to see why. Uh, why two seven when the wind is one forty at eight? So uh, that's that's another interesting thing to perhaps point out. Yep, good point. Did you see that we had the uh, Wikipedia logo up for you there? Um, <laughs> I think that, uh, that Liz did that. Or. <laughs> Our director. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if I'd known, I would have been playing the uh, the uh, crickets as well. But I, w I wasn't sure. It didn't quite hit the cricket threshold or the ricket threshold. No, 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 not quite yet. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just getting warmed up. Just over getting here. warmed up. So, okay. It's okay. only four. That's a warning to you, folks. <laughs> no, I, I, I usually uh, expect the crickets when I've consumed half a bottle of beer while doing <laughs> one of his explanations. <laughs> very, very interesting. So yeah, um, I. Now, if I'd had more time, I would have prepared some 
these uh, pictures in this report um, in this article for the overlay if you're for the folks watching the uh, the video version of the show but I don't so you'll just have to look up the pictures in the show notes when this thing is published um, moving on to the second item in our news notebook uh, final report this accident occurred in 2016 October 10th there was a rejected takeoff due to oil fumes in the cockpit I think that's what it says hang on. let me uh, make this window yeah that's what it says um, a Swiss RJ 1h this is from the Aviation Herald Swiss Avro RJ 100 registration uh, Hotel Bravo India X-ray Papa performing flight 446 from Geneva to London City with 73 passengers and five crew was accelerating for takeoff from runway 5 when the crew rejected takeoff at high speed due to a strong odor of oil appearing in the cockpit. The aircraft slowed safely and returned to the apron. The flight was canceled. Um, so I guess just recently we came out or they came out with the final report in uh, French only. And this is from Switzerland's SUST. Not sure what that stands for, but it must be some kind of investigatory agency. Uh, they, uh, let's see, the analysis and uh, they analyzed and concluded the APU was out of service. The crew therefore used bleed air from engines number one, the outboard left, and number four, outboard right, to provide air conditioning on board of the aircraft. The temperature control valve of the oil circuit of the number one engine was leaking as the valve is located above the engine's bleed band the oil such leaked by gravity into the bleed band from where the oil entered the engine's compressor the bleed air from the number one engine had been selected on about 15 minutes prior to takeoff during taxi at low power the bleed air duct connecting the number one engine to the number one pack became gradually contaminated with oil upon applying takeoff power the flow of hot and compressed air greatly increased in the already contaminated bleed air duct, causing contaminated air to arrive in the cockpit, prompting the captain to reject takeoff. As the temperature control valve, or the TCV, was clearly identified as cause of the occurrence, the SUST does not continue the investigation further and concludes the report with this summary. So, um, let's see... We talked about the issue with the bleed band. While accelerating through 70 knots indicated for takeoff, both pilots noticed the smell of burnt oil. The smell increased further, prompting the captain to reject takeoff at about 90 knots indicated. The aircraft slowed safely, vacated the runway. Emergency services responded and escorted the aircraft to the apron. The captain requested the purser to enter the cockpit. The purser confirmed that the smell of burnt oil was also detected in the cabin. The engines were shut down normally. The passengers disembarked normally. Medical services entered the cockpit and determined both pilots and the purser had been poisoned by carbon monoxide inhalation. The pilots and the purser were taken to a hospital and discharged about seven and a half hours later. So, there you go. That'll do it. Yep. And it, this it, this airplane, the well, the BA-146 slash whatever this, uh, what they're calling this one, the Avro RJ-100, is, mm -hmm. is um, uh, what, known for... A lot of issues with, um, you know, messed up air, toxic air, and you know, that kind of thing coming into the cockpit and cabin. Isn't that right? I think we've talked about several of these incidents involving this particular airplane. 
Yeah, I believe we have, and also the uh, so I mean most 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 commercial airliners out there really that's that's the way that you uh, that you pressurize the uh, the cabin and the uh, so you you end up tapping air from um, from the engines to um, run through the pressurization air conditioning uh, kits through the packs and um, using that for, for for the air for the cabin. So uh, that's why you know oftentimes you find yourself with these kinds of problems. That's why um, it's interesting that the the seven eight seven or bin liner, as Nixter would call it, is the um, <laughs> I've stopped doing the first that. <laughs> <laughs> is the first airplane Boeing, at least airplane since the seven oh seven that uses uh, absolutely no engine bleed for pressurization air conditioning. Uh, yeah, I always really thought that was a very smart so. move when they did that. Yeah, I'm a little absolutely. surprised no one else has picked up on it. Yeah, oh, I haul boxes. Um, we should have him come on the show and pronounce that for us. Yeah. The, oh. the S-U-S-T or S-T-S. Well, I'd say uh, that's that's why they call it word salad here. Schweizer Wow. Nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I've got a couple of questions about this one. First one for Steph. Um, hot oil smell. How does that mm. cause carbon monoxide? I have mm. no idea. Because I'm going, hot oil smell, it, toxic fumes from oil is one thing. Carbon monoxide is a combustion problem, it's, yeah, that's not an oil a vapor problem. So mm. how come these guys tested positive for carbon monoxide inhalation? That's my first question. My second uh, point on. was just when I first read this, I went, what? They did a high-speed abort for a smell? And then I realized that it was actually only 90 knots. Now, that might be quite fast at a 146. I didn't know. <laughs> Probably is. But uh, for those of us that are used to bigger and faster airplanes, uh, mm. for me, certainly below 100 knots was not a high speed abort. It was, mm. you know, it was because, you know, if you abort at high speed, you are really, uh, we were only, we were taught only abort if there are definite uh, indications that it's uh, very dangerous to get airborne and a smell in the cockpit uh, wouldn't necessarily in my mind fall in that category they're very sensitive noses <laughs> yeah. the Swiss, yes. Yes. well it comes no, from that clean it, mountain air and uh, the faint whiff of chocolate so and it's true it's true <laughs> what nick says i mean you find yourself uh, so a uh, a, a high-speed reject is among the most dangerous maneuvers in all of aviation, I mean, you're talking about all of aviation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, with some reverb. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about stopping an airplane that, in 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 some instances, weighs upwards of a million pounds, and uh, so you got that. You, you have to get that thing stopped. Now, obviously, you can you can only do it up until the 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 V1 point. And so, part of my briefing is you know after. So for us, the high-speed regime in, in Boeing's begins at 80 knots. So anything above 80 knots is a high-speed reject. So the, the briefing after 80 knots goes, I will, will reject for any master warning, engine failure, fire, predictive wind shear, or if the aircraft is unable or unsafe to fly. Now you get to that, uh, that high-speed regime, and uh, the, the uh, amount of energy that the brakes have to absorb and the... Um, that the energy that has to be dissipated to get that aircraft stopped. I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, getting right up there to the uh, edge of the envelope. And uh, even though the numbers are quite conservative, uh, and I have rejected a takeoff at high speed, um, but 
well, I, I, I didn't actually, it was, a, it was, a, I was an FO back in the day. We were taking off from Miami and the guy, um, didn't lock his, lock his window properly. It was on a seven, six. And, uh, he thought it'd be a good, idea. I, I remember, uh, him setting a uh, takeoff power. We started going down the runway and you, and you become, um, very familiar with 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 the sounds and the noises of the cockpit and the airplane, you know, as as you as you keep accelerating. And we started hearing this, uh, this um, I started hearing this kind of whistling sound and rattling. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And we get to about 120, 130 knots, and his window just flies open. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that that would uh, wake you and, up. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the guy just and and the guy rejected the takeoff. And I tell you, I mean, I have never felt the brakes of an airplane. Because, I mean, you go through eject takeoff and simulators all the time. But to actually f- go through it and feel it, holy Moses, it was something else. It was something else. That, well, uh, I bet. I mean, uh, you're going to get away without having to change all the brakes if you have done a really, really high speed abort and possibly the tires. I don't know. And yeah. I mean, I know a set of brakes is hugely expensive, but if you've uh, got them up to 600 degree degrees and a really high speed abort, you might well have blown tires. You might oh, well yeah. have wrecked the brakes. It's, it could be a hell of an expensive thing as well. Exactly right. Not only that, but as, as Nick was saying here, uh, so the, the 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 rims or the wheels in the airplane actually have uh, uh, little little safety devices called the fusible plugs. That will prevent the tires from blowing up, from exploding, uh, based on temperature. So these fusible plugs are kind of, uh, they're, they're, just, they're just that. They're plugs that go into the rim or the wheel of the airplane. And they will melt at a lower, at a lower temperature than, that, than that, that has to be reached before the tire blows. So the fusible plug will melt, letting the nitrogen out, preventing the tire from blowing up. Um, oh, there's the rickets right there. And this is not even that technical. <laughs> so now who put that so, on there? You got to just flash it on there, like I did. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you'll but, notice but exactly you right. <laughs> <laughs> but exactly right. The uh, the uh, the uh, high speed abort is uh, it, it's very taxing on brakes and and and, and tires and, and and all that stuff. And I remember the our, our brakes on the triple seven at least were were made by Bugatti, so we had we had really good brakes on those. So uh, yeah, that was good stuff. Did you have to wear helmets, like motorcycle helmets? Yes, and goggles. And goggles. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> and what? Scarves. <laughs> and gloves. Exactly. And very cool. Very posh. Well, yeah. I'm, very, I, very posh. Very posh. I look forward to hearing your um, entire discussion that I, that I missed because my hotel Wi-Fi dropped uh, <laughs> while you were in the midst of your discussion about high-speed aborts and brakes and that kind of thing. But yeah, uh, thank you for continuing on. Uh, forging on while I waited for my hotel Wi-Fi to recover. Ah, that's one of those things you get used to at home. My, um, you know, I have like gigabit uh, kind of service, and uh, don't have to worry about it dropping out. But now that I'm doing the show on the road, I for, I've, I've forgotten how how fragile the internet. joys of hotel Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, yeah. although mine hasn't been much better tonight, and I'm at home. Oh, well, what's going on with you? I don't know. Every once in a while, you guys just freeze and I can't hear you anymore. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, at least so you I still have the power. Yeah, the power is on. Yeah. But. Huh. 
Oh, well. uh, really quickly before before we move on too 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 far from from that from that first uh, bit of, of uh, news that we did, I looked yeah. up the approach into Mysore, India, and there are no ILSs uh, to runway two seven or runway nine. They're both VOR approaches to oh. nine and two seven. So uh, mm. interesting how he he chose to fly uh, a VOR to two seven with a uh, easterly prevailing wind. So uh, how high was the wind? I've forgotten already. Uh, one four zero at eight for a runway eight two knots. seven. So okay. you're talking so, about uh, so about half that, about five knot tail and four knot tail. It's not yeah. but it's not much, but it's fifty seven hundred foot long runway, right. and you have a a an easterly VOR uh, that mm-hmm. gets you down to uh, four hundred uh, feet uh, to twenty eight hundred feet at MDA, so two hundred four hundred six feet uh, height with uh, uh, an RVR requirement of fifteen hundred meters. So just it was I mean visibility was fine and. He could have flown the easterly approach, but he didn't. So. Yeah, but see, then you wouldn't have enough time to get off the airplane, get some good tandoori chicken. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah, come back yeah, to yeah. fly the next. I hear leg. you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got to think about these things. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. Same, worth Strategy. My head. <laughs> good point, though. Thank you, Rick. Um, let's see. Continuing on, this is a, a feel-good story, and I need to play this. Uh, uh, where are you? Another thing I'm not used to being on the road is the fact that my screen isn't huge like I have at home, so I have to find the proper window. Okay, here we go. It's the hairdryer. The vacuum cleaner. Or the vacuum cleaner. The good hairdryer. The Roomba. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Going back to the story here. This is a dog was lost deep in the woods, but it was spotted by a hero drone operator. I've never seen the hero drone. This must be a good one. Hiking well, guide. It's, it's probably the camera underneath it. It's the hero. Uh, or maybe the person operating the, the drone, perhaps. Well, possibly. Yeah. What was he doing anyway? Was he hunting for gingerbread houses? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Let me read the story. See, maybe we'll find out. Hiking guide <laughs> Brian James was held. This is, by the way, from ABC7 in New York, the ABC, ABC7NY.com. Hiking guide Brian James was helping search for a missing golden retriever named Meadow in upstate New York, but the area was large, and he knew it was going to be tough to find the one-year-old pup. So he searched from the sky, sending his drone up until he found a patch of white among the trees. I was able to get a visual on Meadow, the dog, from the air, he said. Then on foot, he raced towards that spot, saw her, beckoned for her to come, and she came running to him. Meadow is back home now with owners Gary and Debbie Morgan. They told ABC News they are overjoyed, and when they saw the video from the drone, they were overcome with gratitude. They are thankful to have Meadow home, and thankful to Brian James, the stranger with the drone, who answered a call to help out, and also suggested to him that he delete the footage of the woman um, coming out of her bathroom. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Oops. I made that part up, as you probably believe now. <laughs> anyway, so that's cool. Nice, uh, feel good, um, well, you know, positive good story. About, yeah, absolutely. You know? It was very you know, pretty also, also, uh, video footage as well. And it, good job yeah. that, because uh, he was in a deep part of the wood, good job there were no leaves on any of the trees. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, uh, no, I mean, it also helped that the dog is uh, white as snow. So mm-hmm. a nice contrast oh, yeah. there, because otherwise absolutely. it would have been a little... A little, a little but a real nice use for if it was a, a camouflage yeah. uh camouflage colored dog be a little more difficult <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> be one of my ginger yeah. dogs in a, in a yeah. bracken uh, never be able to see it no like nope. leaf patterned dog <laughs> 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 
<laughs> Instead yeah. of one of those dogs that have the very bright orange coat. Yeah, uh, walking around like a sniper. A sniper dog would you know would, would have been mm-hmm. tough. Gosh. Yeah. You come for good information on this show. That's what you that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Solid yes. aviation yes. information. <laughs> All right. Um, now, here's an, a headline, item D, that kind of threw me off a little bit. I thought we were going to talk about spy airplanes, spy planes. It says, new aircraft spy opportunities amid aerospace woes. But spy is a verb in this case. Um, so, new aircraft spy opportunities amid oh. aerospace woes. But, you know, do, does the aircraft actually spy opportunities or do the people making the aircraft uh, and working for these companies? You, you'd never be very successful working for a newspaper, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you don't want to bend the English language. <laughs> it's just like, what? I don't understand. Yeah, you, remind you me can't Bill. that headline. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work. Remind me of, you remind me of Bill Clinton. Depending on what the, word, the meaning of the word is. Right. Is. Is. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. All right. Uh, Michael Cervenka. Traces his interest in engineering back to his. That's an interesting way to start a uh, an article, uh, talking about this dude who owns the company Vertical, I think, or he, at least he's in charge there. Uh, he's the boss of Bristol-based Vertical Aerospace, and has progressed to electric vertical takeoff and landing EVTOL machines, with the potential to be quiet and economical. I don't know these. These machines don't seem like they're that quiet to me, but I guess they're quiet, more quiet than a big giant helicopter. Um, these aircraft have been touted as the next big thing in passenger aircraft. Vertical is working on the VA-1X, an aircraft intended to fly between regions. <laughs> Which regions? Um, that regional. <laughs> the region of your backyard to my backyard. In the vicinity of a place. The yeah. nether regions. <laughs> That region, uh, that regional well, emphasis. It, yeah, you see, he mentions his grandfather, uh, who was apparently an organ builder. Oh, so yeah, interesting, an organ builder, and we're talking yeah. about regions. I see where this well, is all yeah, going. I think we don't think we need to go. Okay. Uh, that regional emphasis matters, as EVTOL machines have been often promoted as air taxis, whizzing around our cities. Ooh. Uh, under the banner of urban air mobility. Uh, some even suggest these vehicles could scoop up passengers and whisk them along prearranged flight corridors without a pilot. Vertical dismisses this as a fantasy. Thank goodness. Our aircraft will be heavily automated, says Mr. Cervenka. Both uh, but both regulations and the public will require a pilot for years to come. An automatic response to an obstruction on a landing pad below will pull VA-1X up and away from a collision, but people still want to see a highly trained aviator in charge of their flight. Uh, using multiple propellers that point skywards for takeoff and then rotate to tilt forward to fly horizontally, the VA-1X aims to carry four passengers and a pilot over short distances more cheaply than a helicopter. So that's kind of a neat-looking machine. Kind of looks like a helicopter, but instead of big rotors, just has some of the smaller uh, electric yeah. rotors. A drone on. copter? Yeah, a drone yeah, copter. Exactly, yeah. drone copter. Um, and then uh, the article goes on to kind of shift to another company. And it, they've, I think, recently been in the news. I've seen some stuff on the social meds uh, and YouTube, some videos. Of this uh, Lilium, it's a German company, L I L 
L-I-U-M, Lilium. I like that name. That's pretty. Um, they've attracted um, engineers from Boeing and Airbus. They have an EVTOL machine with 36 electric engines buried inside slender white wings and tailplanes, ducted fans sucking in air and blowing it out in the manner of a jet engine, but without mixing it up with fuel. This mass of fans creates a strong current that will push the little five-seater jet to 300 uh, kilometers per hour, or 186 uh, mph, give the pilot control over direction. And uh, I don't know, did, did you all see the uh, video of this Lilium um, jet um, takeoff and land not fly see around the field? Yeah, very nice. Glad to see that it also gives the pilot control over direction. Yes. <laughs> very important yes. point they've made there. <laughs> As opposed to airplanes, I'd be concerned the pilot that not. doesn't have control. Over. Yes. <laughs> yeah, not good. Not good. Anyway, uh, so I don't know. What do y'all think about, uh, I mean, it looks like they're making strides towards uh, introducing these things. Although I think they their initial um, estimates of when these things were actually going to be in use around cities around the world uh, was a little bit um, optimistic. And uh, they've now started looking at it and saying, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, short distances, it's not going to be a problem, is it? I mean, they're talking about one of these uh, London to Brighton, which is uh, a couple hundred miles. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be able to do that. Uh, But uh, whether it can do it often enough uh, with only four passengers, uh, there and back, there and back, to make enough money... um, to warrant all the development and the cost of running, etc. I don't know, because, you know, what's the recharge time? Are you going to be able to take out the batteries and put in a new set uh, so you can turn it around quickly? I mean, um, it, there are a lot of questions still mm-hmm. uh, to be asked and answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's one of these things where, you know, sometimes in um, technology, um, companies come up with these, new ideas and they spend just huge amounts of money they throw a lot of money at it and um i think a lot of times they never really expect for it to be profitable but just hope that some big company like airbus or boeing or whatever looks at that and goes hmm we're going to buy your company and your technology and your engineers and uh, i'm wondering if that might be the play with some of these companies with these uh, electric uh vtol uh, machines. Yeah, but the same yeah. thing is, if it doesn't happen, you're left with an awful lot of uh, debt. Yeah, I have to wonder how many of these um, entrepreneurs and inventors who are coming up with some of these different designs spent a lot of their childhood watching the Jetsons. Oh yeah, <laughs> probably <laughs> That's did. Kind of what's going on here? That Absolutely. is probably it. And I think now probably I'm right just there, Steph. desperately mm. trying to find my Jetsons sound effect. I know I got it in here somewhere. I'm not going to move on until I find it. So just uh, there you go. might want to go right, get I'll a beer. Have another beer then. No, oh, here we go. <laughs> there found, you go. Found it yep. more quickly than I yep. thought I would. That's the one. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but, huh? I, but I agree with you there, Jeff. I think it's one of those things where you you um, you um, you have these uh, you put out these uh, these interesting and. Uh, and modern type designs and craft out there, and hoping in hopes that uh, some big, uh, uh, you know, lots of money. aerospace company out there goes out there and, and buys you out, which you know it uh, yeah. it works for other uh, for other it's industries. It's a good business plan for some companies. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Um, you need to find a, like an Apple computer in the aviation world to uh, mm-hmm. that has just you know billions of dollars just sitting around doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Might as well just spend it on this. Let's buy this company. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, there you go. But again, uh, I think I've um, advised in earlier episodes that um, if you ever get advice from a pilot, especially an airline pilot, uh, do the opposite. This is the best bet. <laughs> You're referring to financial advice. Yeah? Yes, financial advice. That's yeah, what I'm okay. talking. Thank you. Good point. I'm, You're welcome for clarifying that. All right. Um, e final report. Another final report. Uh, let's see. This was a Smart Wings Boeing 737-800 registration. Oscar Kilo Tango Victor Oscar performing flight one one two five from Samos, Greece to Prague, Czech Republic with 170 people on board, was en route at flight level 360 over the Aegean Sea, or Aegean Sea, I guess. You did cover this earlier. Yeah, Jeff. we did. We talked about uh, this incident shortly after it happened, uh, Liz is reminding me, and we were kind of perplexed as to the decision-making that uh, occurred uh, because the captain instead, well, basically what happened is the engine shut down, or they shut down the engine, Let's see, what does this say? The shutdown spontaneously at 36,000. The crew descended the aircraft to 20, flight level 240, worked the related checklists, and attempted to relight, relight the engine twice, first using windmilling and then using crossbleed. The engine, however, did not restart. And uh, let's see, there was sufficient fuel on board. The crew decided to continue to prog nonetheless. And remember, he didn't mention to any of the controlling agencies until very close to the end of the Mm. flight that oh yeah uh we've lost an engine and uh and we need to put the airplane down so um we kind of criticized the decision uh when when we were talking about this uh earlier uh that uh he passed up several places that he could have you know land as soon as conditions yeah a couple things it was not letting anyone else know about it and then continuing on to destination right yeah yeah um, I mean, if if you have you go through one of these issues here, and uh, and uh, it's a it, couple of, couple of good things about this 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 bit of feed this bit of news here. So the first one is, why do you have to descend once this happens? Well, um, obviously, on when you're cruising around two engines, um, uh, you're able to uh, basically uh, attain the cruise level that the flight management computer. Um, uh, recommends that you uh, that you cruise at based on your weight and uh, and conditions and all that other stuff, which is obviously going to be a lot higher than that uh, level that is attainable on a single engine. So the first thing you do when you have an engine failure is you go to your your control display unit in the flight management system, and I imagine the system's very similar in Airbuses, and you execute what's called the um, the uh, the drift down. So um, the 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 FMC, the flight ma- flight management computer will select the best drift down altitude and will recommend the optimum drift down uh, so, sorry it will select the best drift down speed and recommend the best uh, drift down altitude to fly uh, to get you to uh, where you need to be where you need to go now the thing here is, is as, as we said on the checklist it says that uh, as soon as you have any kind of engine issue and you have to and, and the, the engine either shuts down or you're unable to to uh, to uh, start, restart the engine or you shut it down yourself 
you have to start I mean, right away looking for a place to land. It, the checklist itself says land at the nearest suitable airport, and that's what, that's what you should do there. Um, as far as relining the engine itself, that's also another thing that you do uh, using the checklist. And um, once you... Once the engine either shuts down on its own, or you or you manually bring the fuel control switch to shut to to cut off on your ICAS screen, the, your engine indicating crew alert and system screen on, on Boeing aircraft, you're going to have a what's called a start envelope, which is basically a set of altitudes and airspeeds at which you have to fly to uh, successfully start the engine without having to do a cross-bleed start. So basically, if you're flying at those altitudes and that on those airspeeds, there's enough air going through the engine to windmill the engine uh, back on. If you're outside that envelope, that start envelope, then the checklist is going to require you to do what's called a cross-bleed start, which basically all you're doing is you're tapping air from the operating engine into the high-speed compressor of the engine that's not working. So you'll base it's kind of like a ground start. So you'll tap air from the operating engine to the engine that's not operating, and you'll spin that engine up to the uh, RPM required to introduce fuel flow in there and get the engine started again. But again, going back to the engine being shut down and you flying past all these suitable airports, uh, I mean, <laughs> I don't understand why you would uh, why you would do that and then not tell ATC about it. Well, I think it could be that maybe um, the captain just um, ha- didn't have that much experience and uh, perhaps was <laughs> new and maybe just a regular line pilot. And Or perhaps exactly the opposite. Oh, wait, wait. Yeah, so, no, not, not in this case. <laughs> he had over 20,000 yeah. hours of flying time and he was... Uh, what was his job, uh, the Nick? And the he was the director of flight operations. Oh, director <laughs> of flight operations. <laughs> <Yeah>. Whoops. <laughs> so, I love, uh, yeah, go yeah. ahead. As mentioned in the thing there, it cannot be satisfactorily demonstrated, but neither reliably ruled out that the decision made by the aircraft commander and at the same time the flight director of the operator were influenced by economic aspects. We can't rule that out. There we go. Except that he's now lost his job and his deputy's (laughs) doing his job. Although he remains a trainer uh, and uh, a check pilot and a type rating examiner and all those things. So, Really? Yeah. How how did Hmm. you know that? Was that in the report as well? Yeah, it's in there somewhere. I I did read the whole thing. It's a bit of a lengthy uh, report here. It is. Well, so... Did you see the uh, the issue with the engine? I guess the engine had been operated, the fuel pump or something had been broken. Op- yeah, they had operated in dry <laughs> That's the technical term fuel. for the problem with yeah. the engine. Yeah. Done broke. It's Done broke. Be <laughs> <laughs> before, like on a previous flight, it was run dry, mm-hmm. and then they went ahead and well, just put some more fuel in it. It'll be okay, <laughs> and operated the airplane again. Ooh. Yeah. That's not good. We have a picture here in the, it will be in the show notes um, of the little tiny metal and brass shavings and particles in the, in the fuel valve. You can see why that oh, nice. fuel valve done got stuck and <laughs> closed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I noticed they're also looking at possibly taking out criminal charges of Ooh. negligence against him. My goodness. So this is not, this is not something that just, oh, no. you can just brush into the car. No, nope. no, 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 no. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, if even, so it goes down to this. So losing an engine in flight is a 
big, big deal, especially when a twin engine airplane, because, mm-hmm. you know, if you lose the other one, you're done. That's like almost half. Uh, it's almost half. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> exactly. Don't cry out. But, but going, going to, going to exact 50%, but going to, uh, not only that, there are other aspects, uh, other types of, of non-normal procedures that require you to, to land at the near suitable airport. And that is, uh, I mean, you can have both engines operating, but, uh, let's say you are dispatched without a operating APU or an operating APU generator and you lose uh, a, a, so a, a generator in flight. So you don't have the APU generator available because you were dispatched without it, which you, you, you can you can fly that way if, as, as long as it's, uh, you're, you're dispatching and you're legal to do it. So if you're flying, you're flying along and you lose one of your two uh, drive generators on one of your engines, you're down to a single uh, AC source or, or electricity source. And so at that point, that is another one of those scenarios where the checklist tells you land at the near suitable airport. And that actually you need to, and you need to do just that, you know, get down on the deck and land because if you lose your last remaining generator, um, I mean, you're, you're down to battery power or, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, actually not necessarily because what we talked about last, uh, last episode, we talked about the, the, uh, the Ram air turbine. Oh yeah. The, uh, uh, some, some aircraft. Has one of those. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so I, so I hear. I remember now. <laughs> You're down to your uh, your ram air turbine, uh, but yeah, but it's it's not optimal because once you go down to a single generator, you do what's you, you have what's called load shedding, which means that a lot of the systems on the aircraft are uh, are shed or, or or not not no longer powered because the amount of uh, electricity required to run every system on the aircraft on one generator is just way too much. So you and since you're down to just one generator, you have to take care of that one generator because as I said, if that one fails, then you're you're up the creek. So, um, see, there's there's going to be times when, yeah, it might not be an engine, but if the checklist tells you land at the near suitable airport, you have to do just that, and there's no excuse for uh, for not doing that. Now, now again, you have to look at the fact that uh, when you fly airplanes as big as you know the the, the ten eleven or the three forty or the seven forty seven, even the seven sixty seven is not particularly a big airplane, but there's there's things that you have to take into account where uh, you can't just put that airplane down anywhere you have to take into account uh, you know, runway um, instrument approach procedures based on weather and uh, factors uh, as you know insignificant as the uh, PCN or pavement mm-hmm. classification number you know so uh, those are things that all that, that, that you have to take into account and that's where it is so important to involve as many people as possible in that decision-making process. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't ever, obviously the buck stops with the captain and the flight crew, but the idea here is to involve as many people as possible in that decision-making process for the, you know, safety and continuity of the operation. So, um, so in this case, uh, I think there were at least, there were, uh, the investigation determined that there were at least three suitable, uh, places they could have landed mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. that route. Mm-hmm. And, oh, if, wow. and if I'm not mistaken, I think somewhere, I think this was the article that I was reading that there was a suggestion or recommendation that the captain undergo a psychological examination. <laughs> really? Yeah. 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 Wow. That was right at the end. You're quite okay. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, oh, not man. so great for this uh, guy did many, many things wrong. Uh, also a, a major uh, thing was the fact that he completely blew off the first officer the, FO was trying to be helpful in this situation, and basically the captain was going, just shut up, sit on your hands, and I'll make all the decisions 
you know. Does he also teach the uh, CRM courses? Probably does. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, excellent. Um. Anyways, Smart Wings is the airline there. Just in case you want to know. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that they've done some things since this. I hope oh, yeah. that uh, have improved upon their procedures and compliance with, you know, these things. Mm. All right. Anything else before we move on? I think we've said it all. All right. F. Accident. Cubana. E110 at Havana. Havana. November 28th, 2020. Just a few days ago. Gear up landing. A Cubana de Aviación. Embraer EMB 110. I don't know. Could you do that better, uh, Rick? Why don't you try that? Yeah. Uh, Cubana. Cubana de Aviación. Oh, I like that. Uh, they, per- <laughs> they were performing flight 1541. No, they were not. Registration. Uh, Charlie Uniform Tango 1541 performing flight 801 from Nueva Corona. Nueva Gerona. Ooh. To- Desde Nueva Gerona a La Habana. Okay. There With 15 passengers and four crew. Landed on Havana's runway six at eight thirty-three in the morning, but suffered a belly landing, skidded along the runway, and came to a stop without any gear. Well, they did have gear; it's just they weren't extended. <laughs> there were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. Uh, yeah, the they forgot to put the gear down. Apparently, hmm. forgot or failed, or or both. Or both. Yeah. Mm. And it happens. Not the first time <laughs> that that's happened, and it will not be, sadly. It won't be the last. Um, yes, Steph? I didn't say anything. Oh, I'm just, uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm stumped on this one. I, d- I don't know what to say. I, don't, I was just looking at the picture. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even 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 from, uh, I mean, I remember getting my, my, my multi-engine rating on a, a little PA-44. And you uh, you bring the, the 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 thrust levers to idle, and if the gear is up, you get this blaring uh, siren, or you know, uh, letting you know that hey, the gear is up. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never flown any, M- uh, certainly not the uh, the Bandeirante, which is the EMB one ten. But I imagine that uh, it's actually under part uh, part twenty five FAR part twenty five. There needs to be a device or an alarm on there that. Uh, alerts the uh the pilots that if you're uh about to land or 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 you bring the thrust levers to idle and the gears up uh there has to be some kind of alarm letting you know that hey gears not gears not down oh, wait so, a minute. Uh, uh the controller is telling me that a further report identified a quote from the captain that said that they couldn't think straight they were completely distracted because some some kind of a noise was going some on. Some sort of alarm was yeah, making so, yeah. noise. Yeah. And, uh, distracting them. Distracting that, them from that, putting the gear down. Right that, when that, they were on short final trying to land. That may have been it. <laughs> but uh yeah, I don't uh, I don't I don't understand and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully I'll never forget to do that or fail to do that. Um all right. And uh Okay, yes. Last item in the uh in the news, um, Liz says we need to make sure that we acknowledge the person uh, from uh, whom we received this um, news, and it was the <laughs> the veritable the uh, the the infamous Neville Bounds mm. sent this. Uh-huh. What a bounder! <laughs> now I'm not. So- <laughs> now it's all becoming clear, isn't it? Okay, uh, British Airways uh, flight attendant. 
offers, quote, extra services in flight and during layovers. Oh. Uh, BA is seeking to identify the flight crew member. <laughs> a lot of people are actually. <laughs> it seems a, like some people have. <laughs> yes. Quite a few actually. Yeah. As it launches an investigation. Um, let's see. They've launched an, the, the uh, investigation to identify a certain stewardess of advertising sex between flights as well as mid-flight special adult entertainment. The flight attendant who boasts being part of the Heathrow-based crew and advertises her services with risque photos while in flight wearing her uniform. According to reports and interviews from The Sun, the unidentified attendant uses these photos to lure in clients through her blog. She writes, well, if you ever want adult entertainment on board, all you have to do is give me a sum of money and you'll be treated to a whole different experience of your choice. Her mid-air photos on her OnlyFans account uh, showcases snaps of her hitching up her skirt or the skirt of her uniform in the galley kitchen just a few feet away from oblivious airline passengers. Another photo shows her in the cabin lavatory wearing just her tights under her flight uniform and captioned with no panties on Sundays. <laughs> is that a rule at BA? Maybe it is. I don't know. It's just a rule in general, um, Jeff. <laughs> just, okay. just, how, just how life is, Jeff. I made, I'll make a note of that. You didn't get the memo on that one. <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, so many things to say, but I'm not going to say Nev is complaining in the chat room. Moving on. Who's, who's complaining? Nev, I have it on the screen. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, man. Yes. Nev's complaining he has not had any extras on a BA flight, not even a packet of chips. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, that sounds like the you're taking the wrong well. you're the wrong flight. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, oh, um, I don't anyone? Think these favors were for free though, so uh, hmm. you need to no, fork out for these. Yeah, well, they're not on the official um, menu either. Yeah, yeah no, exactly, right. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm a little disappointed though that. Um, the news uh, that you clipped, uh, Liz, in the uh, here it doesn't have any pictures. Very disappointed. <laughs> oh well. Well, <laughs> um, an extra charge. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So. There, there's a lot more in this article, but I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to get into trouble if I. Uh, oh, I'll, I'll do. I'll read this paragraph. This is my favorite. The mystery stewardess also has no qualms about romping with fellow crew members. She proudly posted a photo of, her, of herself sprawled in bed, holding a glass of red wine between her toes, <laughs> and captioned it with, Nothing better than getting drunk with my pilot so he can do whatever he wants to me. Cheers. Mm. Huh. Wow. Okay. There you go. Yeah, interesting. Thank you, Nev. <laughs> Appreciate the, uh, the news. That was, uh... <laughs> that was good. Some the there. <laughs> here, I, here I am flying boxes. Oh. Well, okay. Quickly, we move on to this. Oh, saved by the getting to know us sound. All right. As I mentioned, as we started the show, or maybe I mentioned before we started the show, that... Uh, Hasn't been a long time since we last recorded. It was on Thursday. Today is Tuesday. Well, I guess it's longer than I thought. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, so, we recorded um, Thursday morning, Thanksgiving in the U.S. 
and let's talk about how our Thanksgiving feasts went, those of us who had them. How about you, Steph? You said you were going to be meeting with a bunch of your uh, neighbors? A bunch, two. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh, I thought it was like a whole group of people. No, 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 no. Oh, Very okay. responsibly small group, social okay. distance. Um, nope, just two of my next door neighbors. Um, I, get, I think it was How many either. turkeys did you say were browning? There were two. Oh, I thought you said like a much well, larger number. It was all I knew was turkeys plural. Yeah. It wasn't just a turkey. It was okay. turkeys plural. But still, but there was a total of how many of you? Four? Four. Okay. So you each got half a turkey. Exactly. Okay. No, I mean they were prepared different ways and then one was yeah. used for like stock and whatnot. So okay. um made a little bit more sense once I found out exactly what the uh plans for those turkeys were. Uh-huh. But no, they're, um, you know, my neighbor's an excellent uh, cook and chef and put together quite a nice feast for us. Um, and it was a very, very nice day on Thanksgiving here. So we were able to sit outside and um, we had some kind of, not picnic tables, but just like big bench tables set up about six feet apart from each other. So they sat at their table, we sat at our table, um, we kind of shouted at each other. No, just kidding. Um and yeah, turkey, <laughs> you know, all the, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> all the usual sides. So, um, stuffing and cranberry sauce. And there were some potato medallions that were fried in duck fat, which were absolutely mm-hmm. delicious. And I did manage to make a pumpkin pie that didn't suck completely. It tasted <laughs> like pumpkin pie and was edible. So, <laughs> well, congratulations. I bet it was, I'm, I bet, I'm not good at I bet it was better or than baking that. things. <laughs> Huh? I'm sure it was better than just that description. It it was No? Yeah, it was pretty good, yeah. actually. Mm. So. Pumpkin pie. Um mm. you know, you top it with enough ice cream and whipped topping and it all tastes pretty good. So. <laughs> just cover it up with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> exactly. Like people that drink coffee with like tons of cream and sugar and you can hardly taste the coffee in exactly. the coffee. <laughs> So, yeah, that was, I mean, that was basically it for Thanksgiving. We sat outside mm-hmm. for quite a while. I think we kind of got things started around 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening and finally turned into like 11.30 at night. May or may not have consumed oh, wow. my own bottle of wine. And, um, yeah. yeah. Excellent. It was just nice catching up with them and enjoying a really, 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 really nice evening outside. Nice weather. Very good. And then, uh, unfortunately, I had to work the following morning. So, yeah, we were wondering about uh, whether the folks that uh, were kind of signed up to come in on Friday actually showed up. Did they? Everyone showed up. Oh, 100% wow. attendance. Yeah. Hmm. Good so, for you. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's good. If, yeah. if I'm going to be there, I'd rather be busy and, and productive. So, that was mm-hmm. good. Um, still nice weather on Friday. Well, it was nice. Um, the morning was actually pretty cloudy and overcast, but still warm. Cleared up later on in the day and um, seemed like a nice day to go make a skydive. So, did that. Um, and then did some flying over the weekend when the weather was nice. It was nice on Saturday, not so nice on Sunday. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very similar weather. And now it is very cold here. Yeah. Once that <laughs> I'm weather. I'm missing those 70 degree temperatures. I'm not ready for winter. 34 or whatever this morning was awful. But hasn't snowed or anything. So, I'll take that. Yeah, we had some snow flurries in the Atlanta area, but nothing that stuck to the ground. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, all in all, really nice uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Cool. So, yeah. All right, um, Rick. Yes, sir. How about yourself? What'd you do? 
Uh, about the same, you know, we uh, had a uh, nice Thanksgiving dinner, um, great food, uh, lots of turkey, lots of stuffing, apple pies, and and what else did we have? Uh, oh, just, just good, good food. And, you know, uh, turkey sandwiches for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the <laughs> next couple of days. Yeah. Usually, Bonus. I guess. <laughs> yeah. But but it was good. And then uh, topped it all off, going to work on Saturday. Uh, went over to, uh, came down to um, to uh, Cincinnati via Denver, uh, flew United for, for a change, which was nice. Um, uh, got here on Saturday, and I was uh, sitting reserve uh, the first two days of my pattern here, so Sunday and Monday. And uh, they activated me to do a uh, a quick out and back to uh, Philadelphia on a uh, old uh, Dash 200 76. Uh, so I uh, flew over to Philly, which was uh, which was nice. Um, windy getting into Philly that day. Um, stayed at the the, uh, the hotel near the airport because it was a short layover, and then came right back. Got into Cincinnati the, this morning, uh, and it was. Uh, so I, when I left Cincinnati, it was weather was fine. Got on, got in uh, yesterday night or this morning or whatever it was. Oh man, it was snowy and windy and bad visibility, and it was uh, it's like yeah, winter arrived. So mm-hmm. uh, I was actually kind of happy that I didn't leave uh, Cincinnati um, yesterday night because I would have to go to have gone through the icing and all that stuff, which I probably have to go through tonight because I'm uh, flying to flying to Houston. Um, early, early, early tomorrow morning. So I'll probably have to go through all that de-icing stuff. And uh, but other than that, you know, just it was, it was great, great Thanksgiving, um, great food, um, and uh, quick bit of flying. So uh, can't complain. Excellent. Um, let's see. Why don't we go with Captain Nick? How have you been, sir? How was your Thanksgiving? <laughs> <laughs> well, I gave thanks for not having to eat another turkey because I've got one coming up. Oh, um, I was uh, fine. Thank you very much. Uh, I enjoyed wishing you all the best. Um, and as regards me, well, it certainly hasn't been that long since, uh, quite honestly, since the last show. So uh, I've been really working hard uh, getting plain tail sorted. I would have um, been looking forward to getting out onto the. Uh, um, Bowling green, but uh, sadly, the uh, club has remained closed because of uh, COVID restrictions. So uh, that's uh, on uh, hold until certainly the new year. Um, in the meantime, got a few things coming up. Uh, an interview with George Lee, a thrice World Open Gloating champion. Um, and uh, a quick shout out tonight uh, for... Uh, one of the air training corps squadrons in the United Kingdom. So, trouble one four one 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 four squadron at Gosford. Uh, Andy there is organising a uh, Christmas quiz uh, uh, between uh, the cadets of uh, the unit, his unit, and units around him with the Civil Air Patrol cadets at uh, Louisville in uh, America. So, I believe you and I are going to uh, help. Uh, host that um, on the 20th of December. Oh, so forward looking to forward to that. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be out to the general public. Um, certainly not to take part. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just between the cadets. So uh, um, 
Yeah. Uh, that Just to be, be clear, something. do we um, we don't have to take the uh, quiz ourselves, do we? Well, I, <laughs> he did mention that perhaps we'll end up captaining uh, a team each, in which case we might have to display some effort. Oh no. I know. You know, the 20th, did you say the 20th? Let me check my calendar. <laughs> no, I'm not available. Too late now. He's going to be ill. Too late now. <laughs> Feeling and a little it, sick. Because for those who don't know, the Air Training Corps is a fantastic organization for young people uh, interested in aviation. Uh, and it's all around the United Kingdom, and there are equivalents in many other countries. Civil Air Patrol is something slightly different in the States, uh, but uh, equally enthusiastically supported. Uh, and if uh, you have a youngster, uh, or if you are a youngster, who's uh, interested in uh, joining an organization that uh, fosters uh, um, an interest in flying, then in the United Kingdom, uh, the and actually we've got branches in Canada and uh, Hong Kong, places like that, uh, the Air Training Corps is fantastic. I would recommend you get in touch. I think the ages run from... Uh, 13 to 18 so uh it's that that great time when you're um you know just really cutting your teeth on getting interested in flying and learning all about it and of course uh, any adults out there who are interested in flying and feel they have a little bit of spare time to pass on to the youngsters uh then please uh, consider putting your hand up and volunteering as i did for uh, many years um as an instructor for the cadets and, uh, you know, do your bit to give back a little um, and help pass on your enthusiasm about flying. It's a fantastic opportunity. So there's opportunities for civilian instructors as well as uh, uniformed uh, personnel. So if you're willing to put a uniform on, great. Otherwise, uh, as I did, you feel free just to pitch up as a civilian instructor and help out wherever you can. Yeah, um, John Jester in the live audience makes a, uh, a good uh, suggestion that we need to get Armando involved because he was very <laughs> involved in uh, Civil Air Patrol here in the yeah. uh, U.S. Oh, that's right. I saw a post of him the other day with his uh, Civil Air Patrol uniform. There you go. Looking very smart. I saw well, one. Hopefully, of- I'll have a chance to meet up with him here sometime soon, um, which actually. Real quick, I should mention I did meet up with I was going to remind you Craig <laughs> yesterday. No, I remembered as soon as I stopped uh, speaking. Oh. I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot to. Um, I'm always forgetting about these little meetups. But um, yeah, very um, just brief lunch meetup yesterday with uh, Captain Craig. He was here on a layover. So um, unfortunately, my favorite taco place is closed on Mondays, um, which is a bit of a bummer. But um, equally good is a little place called. Um, Viva Chicken, which is some Peruvian, but kind of quicker dishes. So right across from the hospital and not too far from his layover hotel. So nice. he met me there and we, we had lunch. It's always nice to nice. see Captain Craig. Yep. It is. Good guy. Um, let's see. Well, speaking of meetups, go ahead and throw that meetup thing up there again if you want. <laughs> meetup time. I uh, got a call on Sunday morning. While I was a mass and it was Steve and Ivy. And he said, I know it's kind of a short notice, last minute kind of thing. Uh, he said, but he's heading back to uh, California after he was home for a few days over the Thanksgiving break. And he said, you want to meet up for lunch? And I said, sure. And uh, so we kind of picked a spot uh, somewhat halfway. It was closer to where I was than where he was coming from. Um, 
Waffle House. <laughs> I looked on the oh, map wow. and I went, I now saw a Waffle a House. there's a fancy, uh, well, you know, there's a place like Ray's on the river, you know, they have a big, uh, uh, what do they call those? Um, uh, like Sunday buffets, buffets and, uh, kind of, you know, expensive and the kind of place where you feel like you got to eat everything that you see because it's so expensive. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And I saw the little Waffle House there, um, just right off the highway. And I'm thinking, how does Waffle House sound, Stephen? And he goes, it sounds great. And I went, yes. <laughs> so we met at uh, the Waffle House there off of Northside Drive. And uh, it was a good uh, kind of catching up with Stephen before he headed uh, to the airport and then back out to uh, California. So wanted to mention that. And uh, also, um, I want to uh, throw a shout out to uh, a gentleman named Brian here up in uh, Chicago, uh, Tracon, Chicago Approach, um, coming in today. And uh, the first officer was flying. We flew into Midway. And uh, I was on the radio. And I guess he recognized my voice when I checked in and goes, is this Captain Jeff? And I said, yep, it is. Who's this? He says, Brian. And he said, I just wanted to say hi. And uh, apparently he saw that I was coming up there and was going to have a layover here, but um, not enough time, unfortunately, to meet up with him. And, you know, not opportune times either, you know, with this co- whole COVID, COVID um, smackdown here in Chicago. But maybe, uh, Brian, if you're listening, uh, sometime in the future when I'm back up here again on a long layover, we can get together. That'll be a lot of fun. So just wanted to make sure I mentioned Brian. And uh, <laughs> again, it's one of those things where the first officer goes, do you, do you know him? And I said, well, sort of. <laughs> I'll explain it later. <laughs> uh, have He's you ever met him? I've no. never met. Yeah, I've never met him, but yes, I know him. <laughs> anyway, um, let's see what else. Um, got that out of the way and Stephen Ivy. And then uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, turkey. No, I did not have any turkey. I haven't had turkey for Thanksgiving in the many, many years because it just, uh, let's see, what can I say? My wife and um, kids have weird food allergies. Let me just put it that way. And they don't like turkey, apparently. But uh, anyway, had a lot of good uh, other things. Um, I had some char-grilled, uh, Greek-style char-grilled octopus and uh, some Greek chicken wings and uh, great, great salads and that kind of thing. It was really good. Nice. You know, it's a traditional Greek Thanksgiving. The traditional Thanksgiving octopus. Yes, <laughs> exactly. That's what they had with the uh, Native Americans up in New so. England. Fished it right out of the river. Pretty sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a while since I've studied that history. <laughs> yeah. And um, that is it as far as I can recall. Anything else, Liz? No? Okay. Um, all right. Let me uh, go back to this normal view. And let's go and talk about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Jeff Smith singing the APG Java Jive in commemoration of our wonderful, wonderful folks who contribute to the show financially. We call them the 
Coffee Fun Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club, whatever. They're great people. And a couple different ways to contribute to the show uh, via the Coffee Fund. Uh, the first is something we call the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And since the last episode, we have a couple of people who have uh, recurring contributions set up in the Classic Method. And those are Alistair Kerr and Jason Kuntz. Thank you, guys. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And yay, we got a couple of new producers. It's been several episodes since we've had any new producers. We've had a few leave. That's what happens over time. You know, we get some and some leave, you know, move on to greener pastures. Uh, But we have a new producer, Mike Bainter, um, B-A-I-N-T-E-R or Banter, and a new executive producer, Sean Maloney. So welcome to the... Patreon patrons, guys. And if you're interested in learning more about the Coffee Fund, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. All right, the first item in our feedback notebook is from Andy. Captain, Captain, Doctor, and Captain. He forgot the other captain. Is there an official opinion from the APG team when it comes to a home desktop flight simulator? Are they are they good or bad for those learning to fly or are flying? Thank you very kindly. Alpha Hotel. (laughs) Andy, Andy, Uh, Andy. I think I know why they're doing that now. They're they're doing that on purpose. They're doing it on purpose. (laughs) To hack you off. Yes. I think I think the opposing bases hosts are encouraging their listeners to send us feedback. And sign off only with their right. initials. Anywho, um, so uh, Nick, it looks like you uh, responded to Andy. So, Well, yeah, I don't know. I was uh, out of the military and hadn't done a lot of procedural stuff. So when I came to the civil world uh, and I found that I was obviously doing an awful lot of procedural stuff, uh, I found it quite useful as a, a tool. Um, so you'd be at home and uh, between trips and you perhaps know you were going to a, an airfield, particular airfield uh, on your next flight. Uh, I used to open up Microsoft Flight Sim and I would get the company plates out and I would basically fly the arrival uh, using the aids that are simulated in Flight Sim. Uh, practice the approach, uh, take a look at the terrain. I, the mapping wasn't very good like this is, this is we're talking 25 years ago so it wasn't brilliant but it was okay um and you could even if it was a big airfield we're going to uh it was usually pretty well mapped on the ground you could even practice the taxi routes you might be using so you get a feel for it uh practice the go-rounds uh particularly if uh, there were some uh, odd engine out go-rounds like in hong kong um, and just basically familiarize yourself with them. So I found that very good. Um, uh, pardon me. The you, I, I got the three forty cockpit model, so that I could you know use what approximated the three forty instruments and uh, did all that uh, when I was uh, you know getting ready for a, a prepping for a simulator. They used to tell us which airfields we were likely to use. Then, uh, obviously, uh, in our practice approaches uh, on those airfields uh, to the point where, you know, you, you just get familiar enough that you don't have to stumble over flight over the, the 
approach plates uh, and also just studying the plates you know you'd pick up the foibles the little odd things that might be in there strange stop heights and things that you might miss if you're not uh, completely okay with them and even when i got a command um which happened fairly quickly uh, in my outfit i was lucky um nah, then it was really <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you gotta wait we gotta wait for your number to come up so i was lucky i got an early slot is mm. what i really mean but uh, you know you got long haul uh, flights going over lots of uh, en route diversions that you're only ever going to go to if you're in a bit of a dire emergency so um, it was always useful then to practice approaches into i don't know um a caluit uh which used to be Frobisher Bay in the old days. Um, and uh, there's one in Greenland, um, uh, Sonderstrom Field, uh, really sort of tricky places to get into. You might only ever have to do an approach there once, or in my case, you know, I never did. Um, but the flight simulator was a great place to go and practice that, since you couldn't, you know, do it for real in the real flight sim. Um, a desktop flight simulator was great. I never really used it for practice handling because it's not realistic enough uh, to, uh, the, you know, to do that, really, to, to learn doing that. Um, you can have fun doing it, but uh, really, honestly, it's, uh, it's not a substitute for the real airplane or a proper flight sim. But um, it, was, it was a great learning tool. It was a great tool to, uh, you know, I use like a bit of a fixed base sim and uh, practice procedures on. Uh, so from that point of view, I always found it very useful. You know, I never thought about the um, utility of those programs for things that you just mentioned. Uh, and I'm, I was thinking to myself, I've never been into Chicago Midway, but if I had one of those flight simulator programs, it would have been kind of advantageous for me to, look up midway and look at the taxi routes and see what I was going to be seeing if I landed on this particular runway. And that would have been very helpful. Yeah. yeah uh, particularly since you, you can obviously get the view from, you know, the ground level from mm -hmm. the cockpit view uh, and uh, practice finding the turnoffs and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it, I, I find it, uh, it, you know, just added a little bit extra on there. I didn't feel quite as, uh, you know, much as at sea as I would have done uh, if uh, I'd gone in there completely cold. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. you say that because I remember uh, um, when I first got hired on with LAN, uh, before we actually went on to the uh, full flight simulator, uh, we, and it was part of the syllabus, um, and this was actually approved by the, uh, the CAA down there, the equivalent of the FAA up here where you had to do um, a number of sessions on a uh, desktop uh, simulator with an instructor, and uh, he'd walk you through the uh, um, cold and dark procedures, um, uh, powering the aircraft up and uh, going through the, um, uh, I guess, the standard operating procedures on, on the manual and uh, learning where the you know location of each switch and each dial and each button is and, and seeing, and since it's an actual simulator, um, you got to see how the system uh, reacted to uh, your your input, and uh, even now um, we now have these more modern uh, systems type simulators where you actually have uh, the layout of the cockpit with these touch screens and these uh, 
uh, flat screens off to the side, and you can select uh, different systems and actually interact with the aircraft itself uh, systems-wise. It's not a, a flight simulator per se, but uh, it, uh, it does uh, give you a leg up. Um, and, uh, it makes you, uh, it makes the transition into the full flight simulator a lot easier because, uh, and also it's a lot cheaper, you know, uh, spending all that time in a, in a full flight simulator, it's, it's quite expensive. So you do want to have, you do want to hit the ground running, you know, in a way, uh, once you get to the flight simulator to get that, uh, that portion of the training, uh, um, uh, done. But as Nick said, uh, I, I, I did the same thing. I mean, uh, a lot of these places that I've never been to, uh, you pull out the old approach chart and kind of fly it uh, on autopilot because, as, as Nick said, you really can't hand fly those things because it's not realistic. But uh, it gives you an idea what the terrain is and uh, and the layout of the airport and all that other stuff. And it uh, it does give you a a good bit of perspective and uh, so that you're not uh, technically going in there uh, for the first time when you get there. You've kind of already been there in the sim, so it does help a lot. So I was thinking. Um those flight, a lot of those flight simulators, unless you have the extra gear like like yokes and throttles and rudder mm-hmm. pedals and that kind of thing, you're doing everything on the uh, keyboard, right? And I'm thinking, can you yeah. do that, Nick, mm-hmm. on the Airbus? Like, just pull out that keyboard and just <laughs> the keyboard that it has. You yeah. need two it, buttons. It, it, <laughs> just it, Control Alt Delete. Isn't that how it's uh, how it's flown anyway? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, two buttons. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I used to, to do it on my laptop, uh, and so you know, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but having said that, you know, a, a little cheap joystick is uh, just like the Airbus has is is very inexpensive. That's true. Yeah. Mm. And I'll, I'll agree with what everyone said there. Um, actually, for instrument training, the flight school I was at had a desktop-based mm. simulator, and it was really good for just practicing approaches or ones that weren't, you know, super common, like DME arcs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Big time. And it, it's yeah. an easy way to practice things over and over and over again in a shorter period of time instead of, you know, spending a lot of money getting out in the airplane and yeah. shooting a whole bunch of approaches. That's exactly right. You we know, had a procedure I, I, trainer in the in the Mad Dog. Um, it was like this plywood and somebody had painted some stuff on the one side of it and then on the back side <laughs> and there, there were a bunch of guys a, outside shaking but they had like these little strings <laughs> little strings of pulleys and stuff like that you know like so you hit a button over here and go <laughs> hey joe hit, turn the light on over there all right <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i interrupted you a little the fire the cold yeah. fire yeah exactly. practice shoveling cold yeah. what's that noise oh you're going to get used to hearing that all the time that's when they open up the cold cold door or the burner yeah. door yeah it makes a big rushing noise oh man good stuff yeah all right good question regarding yeah good question home simulators um well, you know, home simulators, training, um, kind of a nice segue into the second item in our feedback from Dana. And this is his sixth installment regarding his uh, training experience uh, going over or transitioning to the 737. And uh, this one is on the longer side. It's um, between 14 and 15 minutes. So we're going to go ahead and now toss it off to Dana. And he's going to tell us about... I think is OE. Well, hello, APG community. Dana again, and I am uh, now successfully done with my uh, check ride as far as the maneuvers validation goes, which means I get to move on to the next segment, and that is doing LOE type of flying. So basically, it's really a simulator 
um, flying that is just like what we do on a, a three or four day trip and that's how they design the program uh, is that you're basically paired up with another pilot for four days and you alternate flying legs and you're doing normal operations from the time that you show up to the aircraft do your pre-flight obviously in simulator you can't do a walk around but we do eventually do a walk around slides um and uh also, uh, we can't, uh, you know, we can't really simulate being at the airport other than the visuals. So, uh, you know, obviously not walking down a jetway, but walking across the gangplank to the simulator. It's pretty similar anyways. Um, it's just typical line flying. So the first day uh, my, and I'm probably going to summarize all of my OE, except for the check ride, OE type flying uh, here in one day because it was really pretty straightforward. It's nothing really special or spectacular, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, what we do every day. So uh, not too exciting. Uh, our first leg it was, uh, round trip was the, from the wonderful city of Atlanta to Knoxville, Tennessee. And not a big thing there is just make sure that we're in normal flows, uh, you know, doing doing our flows that I had practiced a while back. So that was probably the biggest thing is trying to get back into working my flows into a normal flight, you know, engine, uh, you know, pushback, a pre-flight pushback, engine start, uh, all of them, my taxi uh, before takeoff, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it, identifying threats, so that's a big thing, you know, being new to the aircraft and being such a short leg, uh, having to stay ahead of the airplane, which I didn't really have a, a particularly difficult time to do, a tough time doing. Uh, and then just uh, getting between the two cities, normal operations and making sure I get the weather and normal landing. Um, so that was leg number one. Returning back, uh, you know, it's it, it just a cavu day, just uh, nothing as far as um, the weather uh, was was uh, really bad. It was, you know, just normal operations. Um, coming back to Atlanta, pretty much the same thing. Uh, second leg was my leg. I got to fly. First leg I was pilot uh, monitoring. Uh, the second leg I was pilot flying. So, again, similar situation, just uh, normal operations, taxi out, take off, climb, cruise, descent, um, and just get to uh, utilize the uh, simulator a little bit more uh, in a normal operation. Uh, all right, so that, I mean, really, as I said, it's going to be kind of short because it's really what we do every day. And there was no significant threats other than, you know, just not knowing my seat filler and, and trying to learn a few things here. Uh, my next uh, my next day uh, was pretty straightforward as well. Um, we ended up uh, the... The thing for me this the next day was... was is the really a big threat for me is is flying mountainous terrain because we're flying from Las Vegas to Palm Springs, which I can tell you one time in my entire life I've ever flown to Las Vegas once, never been to Palm Springs, but uh, the weather in Palm Springs was, was uh, it wasn't uh, as pretty as day one, so we had to obviously make sure we coordinated, make sure we had enough fuel, uh, make sure we had an alternate. Uh, alternate to uh to uh i think we had los angeles yeah we had los angeles as our alternate again uh take off uh just be aware of the terrain have the train mode on 
um, in a very short flight over to Palm Springs. Uh, the weather in Palm Springs, we're looking at uh, uh, low overcast skies and uh, about, uh, oh, what, what can I, I'm trying to remember. Let me look it up here. I think it was, uh, yeah, the weather was uh, pretty low, and I'm, I'm actually going to go find, I can't remember specifically. Uh, it was right down to minimums on the approach um, into Palm Springs. And of course, I'm not familiar with Palm Springs, so I, uh, I there it is. So I had to look at the, the approach chart. It was the RNAV RMP approach to Romeo 1 3 uh, in, um, in Palm Springs. So we're pretty much uh, right down to minimums. Uh, and the minimums, if I can, it was overcast at 500. Uh, temperature was very warm and winds of light out of the south. So um, it was, you know, just about, I forget what the minimums were. I don't have, again, I don't have the chart right here in front of me, uh, but it was, it was pretty close to that. Uh, so we landed, no big deal. Again, it wasn't my leg. It was uh, the uh, pilot uh, monitoring and the captain was about flying. flying. Now going back into uh, <clears throat> into Las Vegas is where it got really interest for me because you know, now I'm flying a, a instrument approach right down to uh, the, uh, not instrument, but the arrival procedure, the STAR, as we like to call it, standard terminal arrival route. Um, and it was uh, pretty uneventful until we were just, uh, uh, it just it was it turned into uh, uh, just a, a goat rope. It was um, uh, we had a fire in the cabin and uh, in, the, in, me, in the cargo compartment, and uh, of course now the captain's out of the uh, out of the loop, and I'm the guy flying the airplane, and we are uh, coming in, and you know, he tells me go to the airport, get him back in the loop once we're five miles from runway, make sure it's set up for approach and to land. And uh, it was he was, you know, of course, running off his checklist, and I was flying the airplane. Of course, now I'm worried about the terrain because I've never flown um, in this type of terrain. So uh, it was quite interesting. You know, I just dealt with flying the aircraft. I ended up getting myself a little high and a little fast uh, because the seven three nine hundred. Uh, is what we're in, uh, doesn't slow down or go down very well. And, of course, I was worried about the train. But it all worked out in the end. I got the aircraft down on the ground. We stopped the uh, the uh, aircraft, and we were stabilized by 1,000 feet, and that's the important thing. Um, and I got the aircraft uh, stopped on the runway, and we then went ahead with the cargo fire was not extinguishing, and we went ahead and um, evacuated the aircraft. So... That was the end of that one. Uh, so that was leg number three. Our uh, next um, day, we came in and we did Philadelphia to Washington's Dulles. Um, Washington and Philadelphia, both of those airports I'm very uh, familiar with. And uh, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I jumped ahead of myself. Uh, yeah, we came out of uh, LaGuardia going to DCA, and we went into DCA, and, and, and uh, you know, normal operation, very short flight, again, it's something like 300, not even 200 miles, something around there, uh, and the big threat today is that the weather in DCA is really low, and uh, as we're approaching um, 
DCA, they're telling us the weather's low, a couple of airplanes go around ahead of us, and what do we want to do? Um, so the uh, it was legal to shoot the approach, so we shot the approach uh, landing south. I kind of mentioned that uh, on my last uh, uh, update. Um, so we couldn't shoot using the uh, IAN, but we were able to use, of course, the RMP, uh, uh, RNAV RMP approach. Um, and it's very complex going to DCA going down the river. So a lot of things going on there. And then the miss approach is very short to level off um, uh, 3,000 feet. So you're already, when we met with the miss, I think it's somewhere around 600, 500 feet. And uh, we went ahead and went miss at that point. Um, so got to really be on top of it. And then, of course, the very short flight over to Washington, Dulles, uh, weather over there is good. Just, you know, doing all the checklists, getting everything coordinated, captains coordinating with dispatch and the company, and um, and I'm helping them out with, you know, air traffic control, um, flying the radio, flying the airplane, um, he had transferred the controls over to me, get the, the, the aircraft set up for the approach and land into um, Dulles. That actually all went pretty, pretty well. Um, and that's, that's where, uh, I'm sorry, I had skipped. It was Dulles to uh, Philadelphia. Um, and it was, uh, again, very low uh, visibility weather in Philadelphia. Um, and we have to go ahead and consider our alternates. Uh, weather in Dulles was fine, so we could, didn't need to take off alternate, but we needed a landing alternate. Um, and pretty much uh same thing just a short flight with you know very busy you know doing briefings again uh crm and, and just uh low low visual visibility approach and um it was uh yeah it was <laughs> it was pretty uh pretty interesting um i i just uh just enjoy doing the LOEs because it's 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 a great learning experience because it really gets you ready for being out there on the line and uh, you know you can kind of see what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong but you know the, the hard part of the simulator LOEs is just the time time constraints and just being able to fly the line uh, line stuff and and uh, normal procedures and that will take me up to the last part of my um, training which is the exam which is the type ride um and it was uh, itself um i'm trying to decide if i'm going to do it you know what wait a minute 11 minutes yeah i can probably knock this out pretty quick uh loe of course is uh, just the exact same you get the paperwork up in in, in the in the uh, um up in the uh, briefing room you, you look it over real quick, you go down, you do your pre-flight, you go through, it's just like a regular flight, except for this time you have the FAA examiner sitting in the seat. And at, at some point, you're going to get an abnormal situation. Um, and that abnormal situation is crew coordination and trying to figure out how to handle it and what we're going to do to come to a successful resolution. And as long as you don't make any stupid bonehead moves and bonehead mistakes, and as long as you don't red screen it, um, which is true with the MV as well. Um, but as long as you really just work together as a crew and come to successful conclusion of the flight, that's really um, what you are uh, going to um, end up uh, 
having a high likelihood of passing. So it's it's really a, a, a non-event. And generally speaking, they're not going to intervene unless you're really doing something bad. And if you're really doing something bad at that point, you may be coming back for another check ride. That did not happen to me because we uh, flew the aircraft normally. And remember how I mentioned uh, back that I went from flaps 5 to flaps 10 and the flaps didn't move? Hmm. That was one of the many scenarios you could have uh, received. Um, there, there, there's, I think, eight different scenarios. I'm not going to list them off, uh, but there are eight different scenarios. But that's the one we ended up with. Uh, and the choice was to go back around and uh, just go ahead and um, run the procedure, come back and shoot the approach and land the aircraft. Now, one thing I'm now forgetting because I just decided to go ahead and, and do uh, it real quick was to say, well, where am I and what am I doing? Well, that was done in uh, with a very short flight from Portland to Seattle, uh, landing south in Seattle. And we went ahead and uh, we uh, actually um, had no issues other than the weather in Seattle. And uh, it was... Uh, uh, really a non a non issue. So it was a Portland and Seattle leg, and uh, weather, of course, was right down close to minimums, and and you know, end of conversation. So into uh, the procedure, and then switched over to the left seat, just taxied the airplane real quickly around so I can get my type rating. That's how they do it, and uh, that's it. That was the end. And then they handed me my certificate, and I was a newly minted. Temporary, at least temporary certificated, uh, seven thirty-seven. Wow! So there you have it. That's the sixth in the episode. I am going to stop there because I've gone a little long on this one today. Um, but I want to get it all out there. There's no sense in me doing that because, well, guess what? Next time I talk to you, it's going to be all about my OE. My operational experience. Experience. Let me say that correctly. And that went. Well, swimmingly. I'll just leave it at that. Hey, Jeff, back to you in the studio. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, I don't know why. I thought that uh, this one was going to be his uh, OE, but it was his LOE, his last uh, check ride in the uh, simulator before he actually got into the real airplane. So we look forward to uh, hearing about that. On a future nice indeed best uh, episode. All right, well, moving right along here, uh, just quickly, um, item three: um, Mark Van Ram, uh, the the better looking of the two Van Ram brothers, according to Mark, um, sent us this uh, Blue Angels plane <laughs> donated, um, and then a link. Uh, let's see, National Air and Space Museum receives a Blue Angels. FA-18C Hornet. And by the way, Tim, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that at all. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to st uh, stir up some uh, sibling what that? rivalry, I guess. Uh, the National Air and Space Museum receives a Blue Angels FA-18C Hornet. And it's uh, the FA-18C was one of the first C models built, delivered to the U.S. Navy in 1987. I guess this picture that they're showing here. Um, Liz, I don't know if you were able to uh, put that up in the – I have an overlay, I think, of the uh, FA-18, if I remember correctly. There we go. What a good-looking jet that is, huh? Yeah, it's a good-looking jet. Yep. The uh, boss's jet, too, number one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sexy. Surprise, a new artifact has arrived at the National Air and Space Museum's Udvarhazi Center. Uh, let's see. The plane was one of the first sea models built. I mentioned that. Uh, delivered to the U.S. Navy in 87. The Legacy Hornets, the A, B, C, D models were retired at the end of the 2020 season in favor of the considerably larger Super Hornet, the E and F models, according to a release. The FA-18C flew into Dulles Airport on Wednesday afternoon, later taking a taxi to the Udvarhazi Center. Look who just stopped by to stay. An hour ago, the Blue Angels FA-18C Hornet landed at Dulles Airport and taxied over to Udvarhazi, where it will be on display soon, the National Air and Space Museum wrote on Twitter. Um, I've taxied down that taxiway, actually, in uh, in a uh, Beechcraft um, Musketeer. Musketeer? Uh, yeah, with uh, Captain Mike Carroll's. Well, brandishing your sword. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and your musket, presumably. <laughs> no, it's didn't a requirement. Have yeah. yeah. They, I have to say, musketeer. flying with a sword beside you must have been a real trick. Yes. I mean, where do you stick it? Well, well I fly with an axe. It's right behind me. So uh, <laughs> does that count? <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you, Mark, for that little bit of news. And yeah, I do look forward to seeing the, the show from the Blue Angels and the and the new airplanes. Uh, well, not new, but newer airplanes in uh, future seasons. Those uh, F-18Cs, they were pretty new. Uh, we only flew A's and B's in no. the uh, Royal Australian Air Force. So lucky them getting C's. Oh, fancy. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, they just <laughs> retired that C, so they're going to get the uh, E and F models. <laughs> Time moves on. Yeah, come so, on, old man. Move know, out of the way. Things change. Yeah. Get on with the times. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with my tongue and my cheek. Um, item four, Ray says, Good day, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Miami Rick, and the incomparable Auntie Liz. Now, did you put that? Did you uh, edit that, Liz? <laughs> uh, thought you might be interested in this story. I've also attached a short video of the birthday flight over Sydney, courtesy of Channel 7 News Sydney. Well, I don't have the video, but I do have a picture of the, uh, there it is. Look at that beautiful paint job on that Qantas um, bin liner. And uh, let's see, let me go back over here to his feedback. Uh, well, basically, he um, sent a link. This is Ray Davis uh, down under. Uh, thank you, Ray, for sending that in. And a link to a simpleflying.com article about the uh, 100th birthday uh, flying a Boeing 787 over Sydney Harbor. And uh, if you want to read all about that, that will be in the show notes. Good-looking jet. Good-looking paint job. Oh, yeah. Good-looking city. All right. Um, let's see. Is somebody trying to get my attention? Uh, no, your crew are having a private discussion. Oh, okay. Um, has, the, has the echo cleared up? That yeah, because I've turned my, my yeah. speaker off now. Ah, okay. <laughs> it was you Nick's know, fault. So I didn't. Uh, I could really only hear it from Jeff, but he was doing most of the talking. I wasn't sure if I heard it when I was speaking. So yeah, I, sorry about that. I wasn't. I, I mean, I heard it, but I just assumed because I'm listening also to Liz, and sometimes when on Liz's channel, she has something going on in the background, and I can kind of hear a delayed uh, audio feed. That is going all, on. all my fault. You need to do that whole piece again. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> I have ways of taking care of that. All right. 
Um, let's move on to six and Ethan. And uh, let's see. He writes in, hi, guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope everyone is safe and healthy and enjoying time with their families. I live near Bradley International, Kilo Bravo Delta Lima, which, uh, by the way, serves Hartford, Connecticut and Springfield, Massachusetts and other surrounding communities. Windsor Locks. Windsor Locks is the exact place where it's located. Thank you, Steph, um, mm-hmm. on the Connecticut River. Um, they have crossing runways, runway 624, runway 1533. I've noticed that there are, and they also have runway one, I think it's still open, a very short little one that mostly is used for taxiing, one and one eight, I guess, or one nine. Um, uh, let's see, but the active runways are using for takeoffs and landings are the 624 and 1533. I've noticed that there are many days where winds may favor, for example, runway 33, but some departures and arrivals end up taking, for example, runway 24. Seems inconsistent among airlines, too. A UPS 767 may depart on 33, and minutes later, an American ERJ departs on 24. Are there reasons why an airline may, n- may not take the most favorable runway as far as winds go? Obviously, runway length is a factor, but it doesn't always seem to be the case for Bradley. I know Captain Jeff is rev- relatively familiar with Bradley. Maybe he can shed some light. Thanks. Keep up the great work. You guys are always a pleasure to listen to. Regards, this is Ethan from Connecticut. And um, I can talk specifically about Bradley, but basically in general, we can talk about any airport out there that has, uh, you know, air um, runways in different directions and different lengths and that kind of thing and all the different variables that are involved here. But um, and I can understand that for some people that might be a little confusing. You know, a big um, UPS, let's say a 767 or 75, you know, you would think heavy airplane, why are they using runway 33, which is a shorter runway instead of going all the way out to 24? Well, 33 is very close to their hangars and their facility for the cargo um, loading and unloading. And uh, chances are when they're using 33 for departure, it's because they just offloaded a bunch of cargo and they're probably empty or close to it. And so they're very, very light. And really, in this case, their performance is so good that they don't need that longer runway. Uh, Me, on the other hand, on my flight, uh, going from Bradley to Atlanta or maybe even further Bradley down to somewhere in South Florida uh, with a, you know, airplane full of passengers and a full fuel load uh, is going to take that longer runway as long as the winds are, 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 you know, decent. And we can use it. And uh, we get this data sent to us uh, from our company. And uh, it shows the uh, various performance figures and that kind of thing. And there are times when, you know, 3.3 is pretty close to where the gates are for Acme, uh, that it would be advantageous to use that shorter runway. But uh, if you're heavy and, you know, even though you're legally uh, okay to use the runway, it's, and, and Rick has mentioned this many times, and we've mentioned it several times on the show uh, since its inception, that you have to kind of think about, hmm, what if something goes wrong? And if something goes wrong and, you know, I, I live through it and I'm at the, uh, the hearing and they're asking me, why, Captain Nielsen, did you use runway 33? Yeah, you were legal for it, but you would have had a much larger safety margin 
if you had taxied all the way down or out toward runway 24, a much longer runway. And then I'll have have some splaining to do. And so that is a, another consideration. But if you have a lot of performance for a shorter runway um, and the winds are uh, favorable, then uh, sometimes that's what you do. You know, so I mean, there's so it's it's weight, it's winds, um, it's several things that we take into account. And uh, I think Rick, you wanted to kind of put your two cents in. Yeah, I uh, so I I got this email here. We got this email, and I I um, I, I wrote back, and basically what I told him was that uh, wind certainly is a major factor in the selection of departure arrival runways. And as uh, Captain Jeff was saying here, that as long as the wind uh, performance permitting is acceptable for use, the crew will assess its viability and decide whether to use it or not. Uh, we talked about earlier about how uh, you can you, you can in fact operate with a certain degree of a tailwind. And so I told him here that some aircraft can in fact operate with tailwinds of up to 15 knots. And again, if the performance numbers are and runway length, et cetera, et cetera, allow for it, the crew can opt to use that runway despite the wind. Uh, and then I said that another factor is more related to ATC sequencing of traffic and assigning a runway for departure arrival oftentimes depends on where the aircraft is going to or coming from. Um, this approach to runway assignments intends to smooth traffic flow from the terminal area to the end route environment and vice versa. And then uh, it says that uh, as with every other scenario in aviation, the buck stops with the flight crew. And if the flight crew requests something different because of safety concerns, ATC will work with the crew to make that happen. Uh, but um, as 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 Captain Jeff said here, oh, before you um, continue, I know yeah. you have more to say. But in, in your uh, email reply, did you um, also include a sound clip? <laughs> no, okay, just one. I, I did include a sound clip, a little uh, <laughs> a little uh, YouTube uh, video, and uh, that one. All I mean, that one always that. <laughs> It always stuck with me because I thought to myself, uh, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's a famous one. It's a, it's a, it's an American airlines uh, flight going in a JFK. And I think the winds are howling out of the North and everybody's landing to the West. And there's American airline pilots going, uh, you know what? Uh, we're not doing that. And oh, yeah. we're going to land to the North. And if you don't give us that, then I'm just going to declare an emergency, emergency. and, um, mm-hmm. I'm going to do just that. Mm-hmm. And he did. <laughs> so, yep. You know, that's uh, if that's what it has to, if that's what you have to do to uh, to uh, to get the aircraft down safely, uh, then that's what you have to do. The only issue with that is that a little bit a little bit later on, you're going to have to uh, paperwork. Uh, do a little bit of paperwork and uh, maybe do a little bit of a carpet dance in front of the chief pilot <laughs> and uh, justify your uh, justify your train of thought there. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, the name of the game is safety, and so uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm happy to do the carpet dance if it's for safety. So, there we go. Anything to add, Nick? Uh, no, really. I, I agree a hundred percent. You you stick to your guns. If you have got an aircraft that's a bit heavy, or uh, you've got a slight problem, you really don't want to take that tailwind, even though you could. Then uh, I'm a great believer in that. Nah, I'll I'll uh, I'll wait, or I'll declare an emergency and. Take the headwind. Thank you. Um, it's it's basic airmanship. Exactly yeah. right. And uh, mm-hmm. as 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 Jeff was saying here, um, uh, different airlines use different. Um, I guess. Um, well, I'm not not the airlines, but different operation departments use different. Um, I guess companies for their number crunching. Uh, we use a company called Aerodata, 
for our take of landing type calculations. And uh, whenever we send out um, uh, numbers for landing performance assessments, uh, so you basically send out uh, via ACARS or your um, aircraft addressing reporting system, you send out the aircraft weight, the runway that you intend to land on, the wind, the temperature, the altimeter, and all that other stuff. Uh, uh, braking condition that uh, the the landing flap you're going to be using this the auto brake setting that you're going to be using if you're going to if you're going to use auto brakes at all or not uh, so you send that out and then uh, you know a minute a minute or so later you'll get a re- a reply from the, from from a cars and you'll get a printout of what your um, landing distances would be and the interesting thing about uh, getting these numbers from uh, from Aerodata is that the number so the, the the landing distance assessment, or the amount of distance that you that would be required to stop the aircraft, is um, there is a fifteen percent margin of safety in that number. So let's say it says that uh, that your is going to take you uh, you know ten thousand feet of runway, which is a long way. You know, ten thousand feet of runway to stop at that weight and that temperature and that wind. Your actual number is. 15% less than that. Um, that is uh, different. That differs from the numbers in the quick reference handbook, the uh, non-normal procedures, in that those landing numbers are non-factored. That's called factored. Factored numbers are the ones that take into account that 15% buffer. Non-factored numbers are the ones that don't take into account that 15% buffer. And so the, your QRH numbers, unless it's otherwise specified, are those numbers are it. There is no safety uh, margin for that, unlike the numbers you get on Aerodata. So. Very cool. All right. I hope that answered your question. Oh, and, and I was thinking uh, also, um, uh, Bradley, coming in from the south, uh, a lot of times you'll get that wind, very strong wind out of the northwest, and let's say, you know, 25-knot headwind or, you know, something that's approaching a – a crosswind limit landing on the runway six or two four, um, and uh, a lot and a lot of times, you know that you're going to get to runway three three a lot faster coming in from the south than going all the way around and you know kind of turning around to land on two four. And one of the considerations there is if you have that big headwind, the airplane thinks even though it's a shorter actual concrete runway, uh, the the airplane thinks it's a much longer runway because of all that wind that uh, you're flying into. And so uh, sometimes it's just just a no-brainer for us to use the shorter runway because you have that nice, strong strong, uh, headwind and you don't have to travel so many air miles to go around to the other longer runway. So Mm. um, that's… Lots and lots of factors. Yeah, yeah. a lot of different variables involved Mm -hmm. in runway selection. All right, and let's move to eight. I uh, thought this this was interesting. This was sent in to us from Thomas and Richard. And uh, let's see, Thomas said, I try to understand the thought process of, quote, qualified pilots to do this. And he said, uh, you all stay safe and have a good Thanksgiving as possible. Cavu and 15 knots right down the runway. Uh, no twi- no tailwinds from Thomas. So uh, <laughs> I do have a, a clip before you run it, uh, Liz. Um, let me uh, set it up a bit. It's um, a head-on shot uh, from the departure end looking at the uh, the other end of the runway where the uh, airplane uh, starts its takeoff roll. It is an Aleutian IL-62. And um, it uh, is a basically a video clip of the uh, takeoff 
roll, a very long <laughs> takeoff roll, and uh, subsequent liftoff. And we'll play the video now, and then we'll talk about it after it's played. It's rolling toward the camera now. Beautiful. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where this is, but some mountains in the background. It's obviously getting closer. I'm actually surprised that the uh, person holding the uh, video camera <laughs> wasn't blown over. <laughs> or like tilted by all the grass that went flying in the air. You could hear you it. <laughs> a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of uh, wingtip vortices uh, and stuff caught up in the uh, wingtip vortices as it went by. Uh, so You know what I found interesting? What? Uh, not before you go on. Is that, uh -huh. uh, if you notice, if you look at it closely, um, just as the earth, I mean, the the plane can't the the jet can't be ten feet off the ground, and that's just just going past the uh, past the camera person there. Mm -hmm. But the uh, landing gear uh, retraction sequence already started. Oh, I didn't Did notice, notice that. that. No, yeah. So <laughs> the guy must have put up. Yeah, the guy must have put up the landing gear. Just like, yep, yeah, okay, I guess we're going. Yeah. Just <laughs> guess we're going. <laughs> so. Definitely off the ground there. Okay, gear up. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, if you're oh, going to have to pay uh, a takeoff fee to that airport, you may as well use every single inch of that runway. And that, that's what this IL-62 did. <laughs> it was an interesting video. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a little close for comfort. Yeah, and I don't know if that's a normal thing or if it was a mistaken um, or miscalculation on uh, the weight of the airplane or whatever. I don't know. Perhaps the wind changed or uh, yeah. he had, might have had a problem he didn't uh, spot. I tell you, um, I mean, there's quite a few different height. reasons for it, but hopefully it wasn't just. I mean, if it, when you go down to balance field theory, it, you know, run will look wet to me. Over the threshold, thirty-five feet, and that—that that was not thirty-five feet. So <laughs> no, it wasn't. But it, it was five feet. So it's really <laughs> so, only thirty, you know, 30 feet, feet short. Yeah, 30 feet yeah short. that's not much. That's close enough. You and me and the, the bedpost. <laughs> it almost looked like uh, after liftoff. I mean, it wasn't a very rapid rotation. It was a very nice, easy, ginger, gentle, just eased gentle, right into it. Just yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. And I'm going to say the fence height wet is 15 feet and yeah. dry is 35 mm -hmm. feet. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think he's actually feet, only yeah. 10 feet short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. 35 and 15. Depends wow. where you, he Depends on how tall from. that fence is. <laughs> 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 Ooh, it was an interesting Put one. Put it this way. Uh, I think he should have been used a bit more chat. Oh, perhaps he was using all he had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't have put so many people on that airplane or something. We've got know. a lot of yeah. stuff we got to take yeah. with us to our destination. Perhaps they should have checked the <laughs> Cram it in there and it'll be fine, I'm sure. <laughs> I, tell you, I, wonder, I wonder how, because, um, I mean, we've talked about you know, over and over and over again how from the moment I hit takeoff throw to the moment I get to 80 knots, it's usually 20 seconds. I want, I wonder, I wonder what, what his acceleration was like. Um, yeah. Good you know, point. You know, probably mm -hmm. to, to seeing that. Not rapid. Probably not that good. Exactly. No. Okay. Well, check it out. Uh, if you're not watching the video, um, check the show notes and, uh, watch that, uh, video uh, on YouTube. Very, very interesting. Okay. Now it's what you've been waiting for all this time. 
It's the best part of the show. And if, yeah, you know what that means. It is this week's installment of The Plain Tale, entitled Bravo November. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Bravo November. The boys at Vertol thought they had a winner, and they were right. They had started work in 1957 on a new design of heavy lift helicopter using a tandem rotor layout, one at the front and one at the back. Employing gas turbine engines instead of the more common piston-powered helicopters, this was going to be a powerful machine. By coincidence, the US Army were looking for just such a helicopter to replace its first generation of heavy lift craft, the Sikorsky CH-37 Mojave, and the newly christened CH-47 Chinook looked promising. The CH-46C Knight version would be taken on by the Marines, whilst a heavier derivative, the CH-47A, went to the Army. The Chinook was a remarkably versatile aircraft. It had several means of loading cargo through multiple doors across the fuselage, as well as a large ramp at the back. In addition, three cargo hooks could carry underslung loads. The ungainly-looking machine was fast as well, with a top speed of 200 miles an hour, which was considerably quicker than the contemporary attack helicopters of the time. Other air forces were attracted to this amazing workhorse, including the Royal Air Force, which purchased the Boeing version in 1978 and have continued to operate the Chinook with great success, eventually taking a total of 60 by 2015. It was fortuitous that the decision had been made to employ this flexible and capable helicopter as within a year or two, RAF Chinooks would be off to a fighting war. In 1981, General Leopold Galtieri and his junta took power in Argentina following a military coup. The Argentinian Congress had been suspended and trade unions, political parties and provincial governments were banned and Galtieri started a dirty war on his own people that saw thousands of Argentinian citizens disappear. After only four months in office and with the economy in deep recession, the Gautieri government invaded the Falkland Islands, hoping to mobilise the long-standing patriotic feelings of the Argentinians towards what they called the Malvinas. Anti-junta demonstrations were replaced by patriotic displays of support, and the tactics seemed to be working, but... What Galtieri didn't count on was the determination of one lady, the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. After an overwhelming force of Argentinian troops landed on the island, there had been a short firefight, but it soon became obvious that the Marine detachment there would be overwhelmed. Governor Rex Hunt ordered the surrender. As the Royal Marines were ignominiously stripped of their weapons and marched away, one famously said, Don't make yourself too comfy, mate. We'll be back. 
What Gautieri hadn't counted on was Britain's determination to sail a task force halfway around the world to retake this remote group of islands populated by only 1,800 people, but who overwhelmingly considered themselves British and wished to remain so. The task force assembled was hastily put together and involved 127 ships from the Royal Navy, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary and the Merchant Navy, which consisted of civilian vessels pressed into service. One such ship was the Atlantic Conveyor, a roll-on, roll-off container ship. She wasn't vast, massing a little under 15,000 tonnes, but on board were some vital assets that would be needed for the landings and the battles ahead. These included six Wessex helicopters, eight Sea Harriers from the Fleet Air Arm, and six RAF Harrier GR-3s, as well as four RAF Chinook HC-1s. The conveyor wasn't just a cargo vessel. By the time modifications had been completed, she was a tiny aircraft carrier as well. The ship's container hold was covered with steel plating and a replenishment at sea system was fitted to allow refuelling. ISO containers were stacked on the deck to provide shelter and accommodation for the 100 service personnel who would maintain the aircraft. Landing pads were built for both the helicopters and the Harriers and below decks there was valuable cargo space which was filled with bombs, rockets, missiles, grenades and small arms ammunition. The roll-on, roll-off vehicle decks were used for all manner of military stores including tents for the entire task force, equipment for the Harrier forward operating base, trucks, combat support boats, specialist spares, rubber fuel tanks, water desalination equipment, generators and the like. On the deck, the Wessex helicopters could be stored with their rotor blades folded, but to carry the Chinooks, the huge blades had to be physically unbolted, a dangerous task on a moving ship. Approaching the exclusion zone around the Falklands, the Harriers were flown off the deck and repositioned on the two British aircraft carriers, whilst the Wessex and one of the Chinook helicopters started to operate transferring stores and personnel around the fleet. The island of St Georgia was the first on the list to be retaken and a troop of special forces and marines were landed to attack the Argentinian forces there. The submarine was spotted resupplying the garrison and was attacked with depth charges and torpedoes by Navy helicopters and wrecked. The Santa Fe, which in a previous life had been the USS Catfish, was abandoned by its crew and it sank beside the jetty. A force of 76 British troops were assembled and they made a direct assault on the garrison, which surrendered without resistance. The next operation was the Black Buck Raid on Stanley Airfield, a subject that I've covered in another tale, but eventually it was time to establish a beachhead on the main island itself. Attacks on the task force by Argentinian Skyhawks, Daggers, Cambras and Mirage 3s had already taken place, 
But then the cruiser General Belgrano was sunk by the British submarine HMS Conqueror as it manoeuvred around the edge of the exclusion zone. This had the crucial effect of forcing the entire Argentinian fleet to return to port where it remained for the rest of the conflict. Four days later, the British destroyer HMS Sheffield was lost to an Exocet missile strike, followed by the sinking of the frigates HMS Ardent and Antelope. Other British ships were bombed, but since the air defence cover was so intense, the Argentinian bombs often failed to fuse since they were being released from such a low altitude that they had insufficient time to arm. It was on the 25th of May that another Argentinian attack started. The beachhead had now been established, and the Atlantic conveyor was told to move into San Carlos water, under cover of darkness, to disembark all its helicopters and begin transferring stores. Suddenly, the code word handbrake was transmitted, indicating that someone had detected the radar emissions from Argentinian Superlatondar attack aircraft. The captain of the conveyor sounded emergency stations. A number of warships deployed chaff clouds as countermeasures against the incoming missiles, and the Exocets were successfully pulled away from their initial targets, but then the missiles burst through the aluminium foil clouds and looked for new radar returns. A mile in front of them was the Atlantic conveyor. Both missiles struck the hull of the ship and exploded. Secondary explosions soon started from the munitions still stored on board, and despite desperate efforts to save his ship, 25 minutes later, Captain North ordered his crew to abandon her. Twelve men were lost, including the captain, along with the entire complement of helicopters, which were all back on the deck, except for one, the Chinook Bravo November. It was a black day for the task force commander, as he had planned to move his forces around the islands rapidly and easily, using these heavy-lift machines, delivering troops that would be fresh to fight and keeping them well-equipped. Deprived of the Atlantic conveyor, The RAF had lost not only its helicopters that were on the deck, but all the spares, service manuals, lubricants and tools. It was a major setback, but with classic determination, the British forces calmly set themselves to the task of marching across the treacherous and unforgiving terrain of the Falklands in the filthy wet weather, carrying everything they needed on their backs. They had to sleep for weeks under ponchos in freezing temperatures and on sodden ground, suffering from trench foot and dysentery. Despite this, the Royal Marine Commandos, the Parachute Regiment, Scots Guards, Welsh Guards and Gurkha Rifles famously covered the last 56 miles in three days carrying more than 80 pounds, that's 36 kilos, on their backs, and then went straight into battle. Yomping, as the paras would call it, became a word so popular it was soon part of the English dictionary. 
The lone remaining Chinook, Bravo November, flew a never-ending series of missions throughout the campaign. Often working continuously for over 20 hours a day, the machine carried on with a minimum amount of maintenance. It was just a matter of patching it up as best they could and sending it up again. The small detachment was under the command of squadron leader Dick Langworthy, and having no field equipment like the troops, they operated from foxholes. Despite a total lack of aircraft spares, Zulu Alpha 718 was flown continuously in support of the battle from the 27th of May until the ceasefire. On the night of May the 30th, Bravo November was tasked with delivering weapons to SAS troops who were under sustained artillery fire. Carrying three 105mm howitzer guns in its cargo space, plus 22 men and crates of ammunition slung underneath, the Chinook took off under the command of Squadron Eda Langworthy and his co-pilot, Flight Lieutenant Andy Lawless. Flying with the use of night vision goggles, they struggled to find a place suitable to dump the underslung load so that it would be in the right spot for the gun crews to retrieve and set up on the uneven ground. The Chinook had flown straight into an active fire zone, and they could see troops firing their weapons right beneath them as they tried not to sink into the soft ground. Eventually, after 40 minutes in the drop zone, and despite a cabin lighting failure, they delivered the guns and set off to pick up more, only to run into a snowstorm. At this point, the crew's night vision equipment became useless. Whilst unbeknown to them, the weather was also causing their altimeter to misread, and accurate height-keeping became impossible. Suddenly, in the darkness, the aircraft impacted the water at about a 100 knots, and a bow wave came up over the cockpit to the point where the engines were actually ingesting water and failing. Dick heaved back on the controls and dragged the helicopter out of danger, but the impact had ripped off the radio antenna, there were holes in the fuselage, and Bravo November was missing a cockpit door, letting the freezing weather in. They limped back with all their lights on, in the hope that the anti-aircraft missile defence crews would realise who they were and hold fire. On the 2nd of June, 1982, two companies of paratroopers were flown from Goose Green to seize the settlement of Fitzroy. 81 paratroopers squeezed into Bravo November, which was twice its normal capacity and became a world record load for the Chinook. Once landed, the helicopter returned to Goose Green to pick up a second load. By the end of the conflict... Bravo November had carried around 1,500 troops, 95 casualties, 650 prisoners of war, and 550 tonnes of cargo. Squadron Langworthy was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his bravery at the controls of Bravo November during the Falklands conflict. Sadly, though, he died of a heart attack a year later, after returning to the Falkland Islands to command the Chinook detachment there. 
On board Bravo November, there's now a small brass plaque to honour Dick Langworthy's efforts on that dreadful night. Bravo November, though, continued bravely on. It was modified up to the latest HC Mark II standard and was next in action during the Iraq War, being the first British helicopter to land Royal Marines ashore to seize oil-pumping facilities before Iraqi troops could destroy them. The second DFC for bravery whilst at the controls of Bravo November was awarded to squadron leader Steve Carr for his role in an operation in Iraq. He overcame adverse weather conditions with appalling visibility in dust and smoke, all whilst dodging relentless opposition fire. During a three-day period, the aircraft averaged 19 flight hours a day, delivering combat vehicles, artillery and troops. The mission was the first opposed British helicopter assault since the Suez Crisis in 1956 and the largest in British military helicopter history. This was also the first time in RAF history that two pilots had received the DFC in different conflicts whilst flying the same aircraft. But the story doesn't end there. While serving in the Afghanistan conflict, Flight Lieutenant Craig Wilson received the third Distinguished Flying Cross for exceptional courage and outstanding airmanship whilst operating in Helmand province. During the night of the 11th of June 2006, Craig was tasked with picking up a casualty in Bravo November. The mission was successful despite the difficult and dangerous conditions that required Craig to fly the aircraft at ultra-low level. A few hours later, the helicopter was called out again, with him safely completing this mission despite being very low on fuel. After being on duty constantly for over 22 hours, Craig then volunteered for a further task to take reinforcements to the front line, returning with two wounded soldiers. For his actions over the 24-hour period flying Bravo November, he was also awarded the DFC. Finally, in 2010, Bravo November was involved in another incident whilst on service in Afghanistan when its pilot, Flight Lieutenant Ian Fortune, was hit by a ricocheting bullet fired by the Taliban during an extraction of injured soldiers. Ian had landed the helicopter in a hot zone that was under heavy fire and his aircraft was hit numerous times. One round struck Ian's helmet at the attachment point for his night vision goggles and smashed through his visor. Despite being injured and bleeding, he stayed at the controls of the aircraft and continued to rescue his wounded colleagues and then fly his damaged helicopter back to base. For his actions, he was awarded the fourth Distinguished Flying Cross given whilst flying this aircraft. Chinook Zulu Alpha 718 Bravo November continues to serve on active duty to this very day. Wow, another That's great amazing. plane tail. Always. <laughs>
Well, at least thanks to Micah. Main man Micah, he's in the chat room right now. Thank you, Micah, for uh, reminding me of this uh, story of this amazing airframe. Um, and, you know, it's the sort of airframe that needs to be in a museum. In fact, there is a replica uh, painted in Bravo November's uh, markings in a museum in the United Kingdom now. But the real aircraft continues with bullet holes <laughs> and shrapnel scars wow. and wow. everything else all patched up to fly on operational duties over 30 years since the Air Force acquired it from uh, uh, Vertol. Uh, what an well, it was Boeing actually by them, but what an amazing aircraft and what fantastic feats the pilots uh, went through. I mean, uh, I find this, I, I love this story. It's absolutely great. That story. aircraft deserves several DFCs, don't you think? I know. Well, absolutely. If there <laughs> like, was seriously. one, you could give to one airframe. <laughs> this would be the most deserving I can imagine. I mean, all right, uh, you know, from uh, so, you know, to be in the Middle East is one thing, but uh, to start off having been dragged half around the world to the Falkland Islands mm -hmm. and then performing nonstop for more or less the entire campaign, and then to go in action in the Iraq war, in Afghanistan, and uh, everything else it's achieved. I just think it's brilliant. And, you know, we're, helicopter pilots are the unsung heroes of military forces. Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I really do think that. So uh, my take my hat off to them. Oh, absolutely. Wow. I, I was hoping we'd make it all the way through an APG episode without mentioning opposing bases. <laughs> Too late. Yes. I know. Too late. There, I just yeah. did it, didn't I? Um, well, actually, I did it earlier. I'm oh, you did? Oh. Honor. And Nick's wearing their shirt. I'm wearing <laughs> their t shirt. Yeah. Well, AG um, used to fly those yeah. Chinooks. Uh, I know. That's, yeah. that's why he's a little bit brain damaged. Yeah. But, a uh, little bit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he, that's why he talks slow. Uh, I think, you know, all that vibration. That's <laughs> just like yeah, constantly exactly. going on his head. Hey, <laughs> Nick and I might suffer from uh, uh, tinnitus or tinnitus, your choice. Um, ooh, excuse me. Um, but, um, yeah, he suffers from a constant shuddering and, you know, his brain bouncing off each side of his head because of flying in that. Uh, actually, I think the Chinook is probably a pretty smooth airplane helicopter wise i think isn't it uh, it might be but it's incredibly noisy uh when i when they did a bit of a you know health and safety thing in the royal air force they found that the noisiest aircraft to operate in was the chinook oh. mm. and the worst uh, position was to be the the loadmaster in the back because uh, the position underneath the rear gearbox in the chinook was the noisiest place to be in mm. any air force aircraft you know you can be sitting in a phantom in full reheat whatever but no standing in the back of a ship <laughs> so long was worse <laughs> wow so my new my new apple watch the latest version of it anytime i'm in a noisy environment now it does give me a warning it's like it makes a level. noise <laughs> <laughs> yeah that you can't hear it's, you know, it's just way too but oh, it is interesting. Wow. I'm in a noisier than uh, ideal environment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I was also, I mean, it's a pretty ungainly looking piece of kit, isn't it? Really, the Chinook. I was always amazed that it could do 200 
miles an hour. Uh, I mean, there were attack helicopters that couldn't even come close to it. In fact, there was recently a documentary about uh, guys rescuing uh, wounded um, people, um, and it might even be one of the um, DFC winners that I was talking about. And uh, they had an Apache with them escorting them. And uh, on the way, but they'd been quite badly shot up, the airframe had behind them. And on the way back, they're just trying to get this bloke uh, to the hospital base the forward base as quickly as they could because he was in desperate state straits and uh, the, they said well we'll just go as fast as we can and we'll just leave the apache behind which they did because the wow. chinook is amazingly fast wow. and it's interesting because helicopters unlike well obviously unlike airplanes you know if, if you go too slow in an airplane you'll stall and fall out of the sky helicopter is actually the opposite the faster you go uh, you'll actually stall because uh, it's, it's it's interesting as the as the, as the main rotor, the advancing blade goes forward and the retreating blade comes back. The the for for lift to be equal on both sides, the advancing blade's angle of attack has to be a lot lower than the retreating blade's angle of attack to make up for that um, uh, difference in speed. And so it gets to the point where if you go too fast, the retreating blade actually stalls. And you fall out of the sky. So it's for, with helicopters, it's actually going fast that stalls. You're not going slow. Yeah. And uh, we all have to do now do the helicopter pilot test. Okay. So this is what you have to do if you want to be a helicopter pilot. You have to pat your head <laughs> and you rub your tummy, okay, at the same time. And you have to kick your feet backwards and forwards. So if you can do that. I don't want to be able to be a helicopter pilot. The alternative. There's so much concentration going on at Nick's face right now. He's like, I'd like to keep talking. The alternative is if you had to draw uh, circles in opposite directions with your fingers. Oh, man. You see that? Okay. And you'll be a good helicopter pilot. Can't can't do that. You can't do it? Well, then stop and go the other way, too. (laughs) Oh, very good. Oh, I like that. Hey, so uh, Rick, you weren't with us when we had uh, Chop- Chopper Mike's uh, video. Uh, he was on top of a uh, what is that? Uh, the um, uh, the the new the big airplane or big helicopter they have now. What is it called? Darn it! Help me out, somebody on the crew. Um, the big airplane. Yeah, the, the big helicopter. The one that he sent us. The um, yeah. Um, what video the, of last the, week? The, the, the Sky Blackhawk, I think. Mm. No. Um, darn it! Can't say. So help me out chat room <laughs> someone will tell us it's the one that um it's it's very popular <laughs> it's a very popular, <laughs> popular helicopter. big helicopter uh i don't know the number Get, do the Johnny name green ch53 i don't know if it's a ch53 or not thank you blackhawk i didn't i say blackhawk i thought yeah i think it yeah, was but it's not very big the blackhawk Hawk. yeah blackhawk's not big at all uh, well uh, i thought it was, it's not like it was a, big it's bigger than my car I'm going to go. <laughs> a little bit. Here. You've got a little Honda or something. Don't yeah. You? But yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a good size, I'd say. Little it may not Japanese be the world's. Rice wagon. I didn't say it was the world's largest helicopter, like one of those you Russian helicopters. Big helicopter. Russia, the MI 25. Yeah. Those oh, things are yes. huge. Yeah. Anyway, oh. um, yeah, check out the, the one, one of those episodes you missed. Uh, Chopper Mike did a really nice video nice. for us. Yeah. And he talked because I, w- I was reminded when you were talking about the trailing and and leading and rotor and all that kind of stuff. He went in and showed the gearbox and everything else standing actually on top of the Blackhawk. 
It's interesting because my, uh, this is a little known fact about me. My first ever job in aviation was actually um, as a uh, helicopter ground school instructor oh. for the Dominican Air Force, Navy, uh, Army, and uh, police. And so actually, well, I never. yeah, when I when I came out of a, when I came out of a, a, a flight school, I actually had to teach myself everything I had to you know about helicopters to teach these guys uh, all the theory about helicopters. And these are the, and these were guys that had to that had to pass the um, the um, the written exam in English and I had to teach them everything. First, I had to teach them the whole thing in Spanish, and then I had to make that translate that into English and make it make sense to them. And then they had to go pass that exam and, you know, and, and then move on. So, uh, so that was, uh, that was my first ever job. So that's, I, uh, it's, that's, that's where I learned all that, the, all that helicopter stuff. And uh, another interesting thing about helicopters is that the, the envelope of the, uh, the, uh, the center of gravity, I guess the CG limit mm-hmm. uh, forward and after the helicopter, it is just, it's, it's tiny. There's really not a lot of room to play with there. So those things have to be very, very well balanced. So, um, yeah, fascinating. Because it's hanging from a sky hook. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly I'd like right. the Chinook, which actually are those two big rotors balanced yeah. beautifully. You can do all sorts of stuff with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely right. Great. All right. Well, again, another flawless job on the PT. And thank you, Micah, well, for the thanks. suggestion. And thanks to Micah. Yeah. And no, Micah, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, helicopter rated. But he'll, I'm sure at some point in time he'll, he will be. And even if he was, he wouldn't dare admit it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, nine, Dave. Um, the subject of his email or feedback is, is Captain Nick and Captain Jeff posh? Hi. Another video from Jade in which we can determine if Captain Nick and Captain Jeff, for that matter, is posh. My guess would be yes for both of our dear captains. And why not? And he says, fast forward to blah, blah, blah. Okay, we're not going to play the whole video on the show, probably because it's going to take too long and also we'd get into trouble. Uh, But we're going to play just a little excerpt of the very beginning of the video right now. Hi, everyone. In this lesson, we're going to look at what posh is, who are posh people, and also look at the language of posh people. But let me start with what is posh, because maybe you haven't heard of it. This is, I would say, something specific to England, because it has to do with the class system here. And the class system is how the society is organized from top to bottom, not in some kind of official way, like you get a piece of paper that says what class you're in but it is the family you're born into and it has an impact on the kind of school you go to on the kind of job you do when you grow up so although it's not an official formal thing it's something that affects life in the UK for English people so that's a little touch of the uh, video at the very beginning she goes through and talks about all these different uh, phrases that um, people in different classes use and that kind of stuff. I don't know if it's accurate at all because it it was all new to me, but I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Are you posh? It's complete and utter tosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of her examples for people who are posh. They would say that. Yes, exactly right. 
Um, I don't know, uh, because he, there's no real definition. She mm -hmm. comes up with some ideas and words and that are self-defining. But um, no, I think you just, uh, the, the friends you make, the people you're with, you tend to say, use the same vernacular that they do. Mm -hmm. So if you're... Um, working on the digging roads uh you're gonna tend to pick up the words that the people you're with use if you're like me and you end up in the air force you're gonna tend to speak like everyone else in the air force does mm -hmm. so that really to a certain extent really matter where you come from it's it's what you do it's how you mold yourself to fit in with mm -hmm. the people in your immediate society so i don't know if it's if it really works anymore um no i don't know it's it's very difficult and quite honestly most of us don't give two hoots <laughs> well jade does and if you dear listener mm -hmm. are interested in learning about what posh is and how posh people sound and unposh <laughs> impossible people um sound uh check out the video we'll have a link to in the show notes so you know the old theory that uh, the word posh actually comes from when people used to go on a cruise or a, a, a steamer and travel to india and back this is the time of queen victoria and the raj when we had a big part of the, our society lived in worked in india mm -hmm. was that uh, you would go out on the boat on the port side and come back on the starboard side so it was port out starboard home and that was because uh, that side of the boat was in shade because that's where the sun came from <laughs> the sun is so, only uh, on the you know. yeah so on the way out you, you, the shade was on the port and on the way home the shade was on the starboard so posh people port out starboard home uh, could afford the cabins that were on the shady side of the boat. And I don't think I, it's true. But, uh, I guess it depends on what time of day the yeah, exactly. boat departs and arrives. Well, the sun's always going to be... I mean, uh, as long as you're going north and south, it matters, but if not... You know. Yeah, you're basically traveling east-west, so uh, it depends which, whether what the latitude really, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, okay, for east-west, that makes sense. I used to fly a yeah. lot of those... Um, routes from new england to south florida and you had to be very careful the way you bid those because oh yeah you know you you want to make sure that when you're going <laughs> down you're on the uh no when you're let's see so if, if you're doing a morning flight you want to be on the you want to be on you the right hand side right, right. Side. Yeah. because i tell you i mean i do these oftentimes i do these these uh fly fly down the east coast early in the morning down in miami and uh man it's like it's like a it's like Got the sand sun pounding on you the entire flight down, and it's just terrible. So I went out to uh, was it Pet Boys, one of these uh, car parts places, and I got myself a couple of sunshades. Mm -hmm. Best eleven bucks ever, you know. Best eleven bucks I've ever spent. It was great because otherwise, it's really uncomfortable. I don't know. I will. I will admit that it does factor into my seat choice. Like if I have a choice of seats on a trip ah, somewhere, so yeah. I do Steph's take a look posh. at the Steph is posh. Yes, <laughs> Steph yeah. is posh. Yeah. <laughs> I factor in what time the flight is is going, which direction it's going, where the sun is likely to be, and I put my well because I like to have the window shade up at all times. Yeah, right. And that's kind of hard when it's you know shining the sun shining right in your face at <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, brutal. All right. I don't know. Um, let's skip to eleven. 
from, and I hope that he's still with us here in the chat room. Yes, yeah, I haul boxes. He was there a minute ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he, he sends in um, some uh, feedback for us. Hi, all. Watching APG 450, which was our last episode, the special turkey edition post recording, I stumbled across a few points that urged me to delve into my books. One, discussing the 250 knots below 10,000 feet rule right about the mark of 31 minutes into the YouTube video. It was mentioned that, quote, all these speeds are referring to ground speeds, not actual Mm -hmm. speeds. Maybe I misunderstood the context of this comment. Yeah, you did, because what I was saying was that we don't really know what their indicated airspeed was because that's not a readout that we can see on the radar display from air traffic control. They see ground speed. So that was my point uh, when I mentioned the ground speed. But anyway, he continues. But the 250-10 rule is absolutely about indicated airspeed, as stated in FAR 91.117. Yes, correct. we agree. Uh, A, unless authorized, otherwise authorized by the administrator, no person may operate an aircraft below 10,000 feet MSL in an indicated airspeed of more than 250 knots. In Europe, similar rules apply. Of course, Europe wouldn't be Europe if things weren't a little more complicated and expensive. Yaz's S-E-R-A, I don't know what that stands for, dot six zero zero one, lays out that the 250 rule is applicable only in certain classifications of airspace. So now it all depends on the structure of the airspace you're flying in, which is different in every European country. Uh, Miami Rick mentioned the example of Germany, of which a typical non-inclusive airspace cross-section diagram is attached. With the help of the linked SERA 6001, you will now be able to make sense of the situation. Nah, I wasn't able to make sense of that at all. (laughs) In any case, there is one factor which will allow a deviation from the regulation as stated in FAR 91.117 paragraph D. If the minimum airspeed for any particular operation is greater than the maximum speed prescribed in the section, the aircraft may be operated at that minimum speed. This also means that if ATC assumes separation, they can advise or request you to fly a different speed. Okay. Um, okay the second thing, anything, any comment about that, folks? I think we agree. No, no, with them. Yeah. no it's, it's uh, yeah. indicated. All right, number two, the bank angle selector as featured on your favorite Boeing jet will limit the maximum bank angle for AFDS operation and heading or VOR modes. Uh, what's the AFD? Air, air, air? Automatic flight director flight system. Director and, system. Um, okay. and uh, I mean, if VOR modes is a quid because uh, a lot of, a lot of Boeing aircraft don't, I mean, the only airplane really that I can think of Boeing airplane out there that still has a VOR mode is the 737. But uh, mm-hmm. cause other than that, uh, uh, the only way to fly VOR approaches on 757 is uh, using LNAV, lateral navigation, and uh, by calling up the procedure off of the uh, flight management computer, you know, the, 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 you know, the navigation database. And you can, I mean, you, you can, I guess, well, not, you, you certainly can fly a VOR approach on head and select using, uh, you know, uh, green needles or raw data. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the day-to-day operation, you'd actually you'd only fly that procedure uh, using uh, the uh, procedure off of the FMC. From it's too the easy. Database. Too easy. I know. Just LNAV. Yeah. Go. No, no, no. Do the VORs heading select and do it like a real man. Come on. Do it like a manual. Yeah. 
Uh, regarding Can't standard rate turns, bank angle is indeed a function of true airspeed. Roughly true airspeed divided by 10 plus 5 equals angle. Mm-hmm. Well, we have math here today. I, high performance aircraft, <laughs> however, do not use standard rate turns as the bank angle would simply become excessive for a true airspeed of 250 knots or greater. Instead, one half standard rate turns are used. Hot. That's right. All right. High up in the cruise, LNAV, real time bank angle protection, does indeed limit bank angles. This is not to conform with standard rate turns as described above. Instead, bank is limited to reduce load factors. FAA max 1.2 G, EASA max 1.3 G, and so not wander into Buffett onset boundaries. Attached is a picture of a Bob chart, BOB chart. Um, you can see for yourself. Was it Bank Angle Buffett? Is that what the BOB stands for? Buffett onset boundaries. Buffett onset boundary. I think that Bob is just a short name for Robert. <laughs> Um, so you can see for yourself. The short story, a coordinated turn requires bank. Bank reduces lift. A- angle of attack increase compensates loss of lift, but also causes the separation point to move forward up to the point where you get low speed buffet. This leads – somebody start playing the crickets, please, while I'm reading the rest of this. This leads me to think it would be unwise to avoid weather using high angles of bank in the heading select at altitude as no protection – except for possibly the bank angle limiter exists. As a public service, the FAA provides us with a beautiful slideshow regarding this matter. <laughs> did he put a link to that beautiful slideshow? I don't think he did. Mm-mm. Yeah. No. You ought to look that up yourself. Um, and then finally, the last thing he puts here, three, this is some good stuff, language trouble. As a UN specialized agency, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, should be providing all documents and publications in all six official UN languages, Arabic, Chinese, English, French, Russian, and Spanish. Annex 10, however, has only been supported in four languages, English, French, Russian, and Spanish. And it states, uh, the air ground radio telephony communications shall be conducted in the language normally used by the station on the ground. Excuse me, telephony? Telephony. <laughs> telephony. I was just going to let it go, Nick. I, I knew <laughs> no, that after I said that. Uh, Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I, I, no, I was after just, I said that. I'm thinking. I think I really screwed that word up, but I'll fix it in post. <laughs> but no one will notice. Nobody will notice. <laughs> we're just going to. We're just going to go. Oh, and certainly, Jack certainly, Jack nobody Jack. would mention it and embarrass me. Exactly right. Particularly with that little bit of drool coming down at the side of your mouth. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. 5.2.1.2.1, the air ground radio telephony communications shall be conducted in the language normally used by the station on the ground or in the English language. 5.2.1.2.2, the English language shall be available on request from any aircraft station at all stations on the ground serving designated airports and routes used by international air services. And... 5.2.1.2.3, the language is available at a given station on the ground shall p- form part of the aeronautical information publications and other published aeronautical information concerning such facilities. Wow. French, Spanish, Russian, Chinese. Practice while unfortunate seems to be legal. I'm sharing your frustration about the whole world not simply using English, but let's consider this. What if ICAO had elected Chinese to be the primary language of choice? I wouldn't be a pilot. Uh, would you be eager eager to learn it? No. Would you be able to utilize it in the most clear way? No. Here's a case. 
Paris's uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport is one of two European hubs for FedEx. FedEx even have their own dedicated cargo ramp on this French piece of land. Nevertheless, the French ramp tower controllers are now required to speak to FedEx aircraft in English only. That's only logical, I hear you say. Now, it's not only that. They are also required to use FAA radio transmissions, or FAART, as stipulated in Order 7110.65. That's an air traffic control document uh, from the FAA U.S. If I were a Frenchman, I'd consider this very intrusive. <laughs> yeah, but we're not. I hold boxes has way too much time in his hands. Yeah, really. Apparently, <laughs> no. It was, it was good, good feedback. And as far as uh, as far as the uh, weather deviation, using a twenty-five degree bank, um, I don't know what kind of aircraft uh, I hold boxes flies. Uh, probably, pro- sounds like sounds like a like a Big. like a Boeing pilot. Since yep. since he since he since he mentioned uh, uh, the VOR. Uh, VOR mode on the mode control panel there, so that must it must be a Boeing pilot. Usually, so what I meant by that is, obviously, you want to stay away from the top of the amber band, and um, when doing these um, when doing these weather deviations, um, obviously, I am nowhere near the top of the amber band on the low speed side of things, or the red ants on the high speed side of things. So um uh it's 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 not like it's not like you you uh you you cookie cutter everything you know you're going to fly the thing the same way regardless of the conditions obviously before you do anything you have to and I'm I'm sure you know this very well you have to um um see what the conditions are and see what the best course of action is for the current conditions I mean you're not going to you know do one thing one time and do that same thing another time because it might not be safe the second time around. So that's what I meant. So taking into account the aircraft performance, the energy state of the aircraft, available thrust, obviously turbulence if there's any, uh, my cruise altitude, available thrust, you know, where the wind's coming from, all, all, the, all the variables that you're very, very much well aware of. I'll, I'll make a decision of what kind of uh, method to use to do my weather deviations, um, so uh, that's that's kind of what I was talking about when. when, yeah, when, well, I, when what I you said, really need to do is stand the airplane on its ear and then pull until the vibration, the buffet, makes your teeth rattle. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like like I'm in a Chinook. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I meant by that. All right. But I mean, because I mean, you you keep you you think about the fact that uh, I mean these special. I mean, I, I remember the flying flying weather deviations on a seven forty seven. I mean, you talk about an airplane that weighs upwards of a, you know almost a million pounds, and um, you'll begin a turn, and the inertia on that airplane, even though you're you're, you're commanding a twenty five degree bank, just the mere inertia and energy of that airplane to get it to go where you want it to go, and add to that the fact that you might have a bit of a tailwind component. Uh, you really have to anticipate those turns, and uh, um, there, you know there's 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 more to it than than just you know spinning the knob and hitting the hand select button. You have to uh, you have to uh, you know weigh in all 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 the variables and, and based on the situation for the best possible outcome to take place. So, oh, I I hate to uh, inform my hall boxes, but uh, looks like 
the producer director uh, said that he is now banned from sending in more, any more feedback. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, that was good stuff. That was good. Yeah, it was good. It was really well, good. I mean, I thought so too, but apparently Liz, yeah, she was bored with it. No, she was just joking around. All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the uh, the feedback. It's good stuff. I got kept the discussion going. All right. Um, looking at uh, where are we? Eleven. Got maybe room for at least one, maybe two more. Um, so I'm going to backtrack on some of the ones that we skipped. Um, this might be an inter- interesting one to close out. Um, this is from Becky. And she said, thought of you guys. Then she sent us a link. This is uh, item five uh, to, to an avweb.com article. Um, an aviation or new study finds pilots' brains work differently. <laughs> we could have told you that. Um, <laughs> We're lucky they work at all. <laughs> I mean, I think anybody that knows a pilot knows that our brains work differently. Um, medical science has now confirmed what your family and friends have been telling you since the first time you strapped in. And maybe before that, your brain works differently than that of non-flying folks. And contrary to what those in your immediate bubble might think, that's actually a good thing. Well, mostly. Chinese researchers have determined that the brains of pilots were are wired differently to deal with the unique environment of the cockpit. The researchers determined that pilots' brains have greater connections between the central executive network, which is the part of the brain that makes sense of various bits of information, and the parts of the brain supplying the raw data. That's the good thing. It uh, might enable the network to have more diverse functions, which puts, uh, which helps put all the various inputs from instruments, the radio, the sight picture, picture, wow, picture, wow, Jeff, which helps put all the various inputs from instruments, the radio, the sight picture, and others in the cockpit into coherence. Pilots are always working in complex dynamic environments. Flying is now not so much a physical job, but a high-level cognitive activity, the study said. The pilot should be completely aware of all conditions in real time and be ready to deal with various potential emergencies. The trade-off might have something to do with what your partner whispers in your ear at parties, although he or she probably expresses it more colorfully than the scientific explanation. While the central executive network is synthesizing all that diverse data, there seems to be a decreased level of internal connectivity. That, said the researchers, is associated with self-control and appraisal of threatening stimuli. The study involved 14 flight instructors at the Civil Aviation Flight University of China and 12 first officers from Chinese airlines whose brains were watched in action on imaging equipment. Now, that's maybe just Chinese brains. What about brains from other cultures? And- yeah. That's a very good point. So those functional MRIs are really interesting. You know, you basically are in an MRI scanner and you're um, doing some sort of either cognitive task or watching something or listening to something. And um, they have ways to see how the um, various areas of the brain lights up. Um, I don't know how much you guys have noticed this, but say you're flying, you have a long day of flying or a long day of being at work. And, um, you know, you're not doing anything necessarily physically active, like it's saying, um, but it this probably applies more to someone like Jeff if you're doing, you know, um, shorter flights and have a lot of uh, terminal procedures and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, just where it's a lot of cognitive stuff going on. 
Um, but certainly I found just, you know, doing um, uh, flying jumpers and things like that every 20 minutes, it's a new flight and there's a lot going on. I'm hungry all the time when I'm flying. Um, <laughs> it's because your brain doesn't have its own fuel stores. So it's using a lot of glucose all the time. So you really have to keep keep feeding it to make sure that you're able to stay sharp and, and keep using those brain, being able to rub those two brain cells together to to do what you need to do. Hmm. What's the best way to feed your brain? Food, generally. <laughs> oh, not I've not alcohol. Got the wrong kind of food. <laughs> no. Beer is the best way. Beer. I mean, yes. we, we know that pilots drink beer. It yes. must be to feed our brains. You only, there might be yeah. something to that. Do you yeah, all hear well, no, something pork, like pork chop in every bottle? Something like the you know your brain is like two percent of your total body weight, but consumes twenty percent of your glucose, and it's just because it doesn't have its own. Wow. Huh. You know, glucose stores. I thought that was an interesting study. Do you hear that background yeah. noise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. It sounds like somebody with like a jackhammer. I'm on the 17th floor, so I have no idea what that noise is. It sounds like it's coming from outside the window, but it stopped. Good. Okay. Good. Yeah. It was irritating. Yeah. But anyway, I find that stuff interesting, so thanks, Becky. Yeah, yeah me too. Very interesting feedback and... um yeah, so I, I'm just trying to work out if in general life having a pilot's brain is good for you. If you weren't a pilot and you just were walking around with a pilot's brain in your head, I mean, what kind of a person would you be? Screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if, if part of that is after you have kind of been exposed to that kind of environment and that kind of stimuli, if your brain changes and adapts so is it nature versus right or nurture? You know, maybe it's a little both. Probably a combination both, yeah. of both. Interesting. Yeah, your brain's got to be wired a certain way to be able to get through the aptitude tests mm-hmm. and, and actually be able to control an airplane adequately the first time you get into it. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really it's really interesting because I feel like not only do you have to deal with what's going on right now, but you have to you know, think about what's going to happen, you know, a certain amount of time down the road, not only in, you know, time-wise, but also, um, I guess, geographically, because I remember my instructor used to say, never, never, never go in an airplane somewhere that you haven't been to five minutes before. And that, and that is, uh, that's very true. And so you have to, uh, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like to, you know, be in a very, very high stress environment, you know, in, in, in the cockpit going through some kind of, you know, emergency drill or procedure and having a, uh, a, uh, what's that, what's that, what's the thing called, Steffi, that, uh, where, where, where you, where you have, uh, the, the, the brain mapping in real time that they put those, uh, probes on your head and. Oh, so there's, uh, there's a lot of different ways to, to do that. So there's E, E, um, so if you're looking at just brain activity, EEGs, um, is that what you're yeah. Or are you to? talking about the actual yeah. part of your brain? No, no, no. Just, just what, what it would, what your brain would look like, you know, how how it actually lights up in certain parts of your brain. Yeah. So like. the functional MRIs are kind of interesting for for that. You know, what parts of your brain are active while you're doing different types of cognitive tests? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, just crazy stuff. I don't know if, if this was already put up um, <laughs> on the on the screen, but Lane says 
So if I eat lots of candy, will I get smarter? <laughs> well, not you, Lane. Yeah, and <laughs> let's, 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 you know, we'll revise uh, the answer to Nick's question. Wholesome foods, you know, things that are not processed, not overly, um, you know, refined sugar. I find those, like uh, those fantastic American uh, multi-flavor jelly beans. They're the mm. best way to get your pilot brain working. <laughs> yes. There you go. Highly recommended by the... There was uh, one of your presidents used to like those. Reagan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was it Reagan? Jelly Bellies. Yep. There you go. All right. Um, I think we can do one more here. We have under 10 minutes. Steven, number 12, getting a medical. Hello, ABG crew. I've had the flying bug for years now and never was sure if I could get a third-class medical with my lazy eye. Recently, I learned there is a way to get an exemption if your one eye doesn't meet the 2040 requirement, which my one eye is 2050, but the other one's 2020. Personally, I feel I could easily pass the demonstration flight for the examination, but I'm curious what the process would be. Should I start training first, or should I start with paperwork before I start throwing money at it? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks for the entertaining podcast, and I love when the Wikipedia starts. (laughs) Thanks. Stephen Hoover, a.k.a. RC Pilot. All right, I'm going to sit back and listen to the answer from whoever wants to start with it. I'll start. Yep. So it depends Definitely on the resident doctor. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So some of it depends on what you're planning to do with your flying career. So if the goal is to finish your license and be able to exercise those privileges or do something um, career oriented with it down the road, definitely go and get your medical first. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you've addressed any issues and you might be surprised at what, what, what may or may not be issues. The things that you think might be roadblocks or barriers might be, not actually be and there might be other things that are uncovered that you need to take care of in the process so i think that's never a bad place to start um i think it's still the same where when here in the u.s when you go to get your um first third class medical certificate that um has your student pilot certificate information on it as well um but yeah so it, um you know just going back to thinking about what those requirements are with your uh third class medical so you know correctable to 2040, I believe, is what the requirement is. Um, probably getting that wrong. I, yeah, I think because he mentions um, that um, that 2040 figure there, and his is 2050. Yeah, I'd have to go back and double check. I don't have it pulled up here in front. Of, um, third class medical certificates require 2040 or better near and distant vision. So, um, so yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to pull it up quickly. Sure. So require 2020 or better with or without correction in each eye separately. To hold a first or second medical, second class medical, and then third class is twenty forty or better. So, um, for near and distant vision. But again, if there's other issues going on, if you have um, um, astigmatism or other other visual issues, um, I would definitely check with your AME first and see if you do need to get a more thorough eye examination before they'll sign you off. Yeah. So, what's the rule for a one-eyed pilot? So it might um, actually be a uh, um, a soda. Might have to do dem- a soda, yeah. Yeah. A statement of or a, what's the demonstrate ability? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might have to go out and do a flight test because it might be easier you have to worry for him about to, get a, to just close one eye and say I've only got. <laughs> I'm glad you works. just said close an eye and not like <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah, not poke, out, poke your out your eye. I wasn't going to recommend he puts a knitting needle in it. <laughs> now, actually, yeah. actually, no, a a uh, a. Um, uh, an airline captain uh, just has one eye, and actually, he's the guy that uh, um, 
that landed that 737 oh, yeah. in that ditch in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you telling us that. And about then that. Flew, flew it back out. And uh, so he's, I, I believe, is still flying around. I mean, he, might, he might have retired by now. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, as long as the... Uh, as long as you prove to the feds that you can operate the aircraft safely and, uh, you know, you get a uh, statement of demonstrated ability and, you know, you'll have that on your medical um, and you'll go back and get your medical every six months or, you know, however however often you have to get it to maintain the level of medical required for the operation, uh, you'll be fine. You know, this really, uh, but as Steph, you said, yeah, it, it really all depends on what you plan on doing with that uh, pilot certificate. And Yeah, uh, I mean, if you're yeah. only ever, you know, if your vision is correctable to 2040, and you meet the requirements for that third class uh, certificate, but you can't correct to 2020 and can't get to um, being signed off for that first or second class certificate, then that may affect career goals in the future. So, um, yeah, here I think about all of those things. Yeah. So, does he throw money at the flying or does he wait until he sorts out the uh, eye issue? Oh, in, in all cases, I would get a medical first. There you go. Absolutely. Definitive answer. Absolutely. And see if you can get that exemption. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Well, guess what? That will do it for episode 451. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're new to the show, uh, welcome to our wonderful APG community. Uh, you know, Come on in. Uh, take your shoes off. Uh, get comfortable. Look around. Start talking with people. And uh, if you're... Just listening to the audio, well, just listening, almost everybody listens to the audio-only version of the podcast, but we do also record this live and uh, on video, and it's on YouTube and Facebook Live, and if you'd like to hear when we're doing that and be part of this wonderful group of folks that we have in our live audience, uh, make sure that you are um, following us in the social meds, and Steph is going to tell you about that here very shortly, but before that... Uh, go over to our website, uh, airlinepilotguy.com, and you can check out all the great stuff that we have there. Uh, we have uh, information about the crew and the community, and we have a community calendar. We have merchandise. We have information about how you can be part of the uh, Coffee Fund cadre and the uh, Coffee Fund. We have the APG library. Our uh, librarian, Tiffany, uh, takes care of that for us. Thank you, Tiffany. And uh, we also have an expanded um, place for pilot or plane tales where Nick puts uh, more information, more content uh, regarding. Okay, yeah, four, four new tales out today. Look at that. See, lots of good stuff to uh, check out. You can information about how you can actually subscribe to the RSS feed for, for just plane tales and not all this other stuff that we do. And so check that out over there again on AirlinePilotGuy.com. And as I mentioned, we're also in the social meds. We are indeed. You can head over to uh, Twitter. We are at APG Crew on Twitter. We are also at APG Crew on Instagram. And if Facebook is more your speed, Facebook.com slash AirlinePilotGuy. So head on over there, join us, join the community, and we will see you on the social meds. We are not on TikTok. Well... And we're not going to be. Well, <laughs> we are. Unless <laughs> no, Nick, I think I nominate Nick to take care of TikTok because he's no, got the most I'm time to create videos. Person. I don't <laughs> want any more social media. Sorry. Too much already, man. Too much already. Just give me a book that I can read. All right. Maybe G Library. Um, so let's see. Hillel's great. He follows it. Hillel, it's time for Slack. Slack. <laughs> 
It's okay. Just say what you have to say about Slack, okay? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Jeff, you've got to try these towels. I, I will later. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you didn't get them all wet. And uh, let's see. We also want to make sure that we throw out a big thank you. I'm trying to find the applause. Where are you? To our producer director in Toronto, Liz Piper. Thank you for all the hard work again. Soon, Liz, soon you'll have that nice brand new laptop computer. And she'll be so much happier. And uh, with that... Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. And see you next time. Merry Christmas, everybody. Not yet. (laughs) Too soon. Just fine. Airline, not a guy. I 